Good morning. Saturday, June 11. I'm back from a week at the beach. A lot happens when I go away. It's usually uh, usually the way it works. Um, can't say anything really surprises me at all. Uh, maybe the folks in CNBC, but um, <laughs> they were literally spitting out their coffee yesterday morning when the CPI numbers came out. Clueless. Depressed. But anyone who's been in these rooms should not have been surprised. I don't think anyone was surprised. We have a lot to talk about. It's been uh, almost a week and a half since I did one of these spaces. Got a lot of talking points that I want to go over. Um, see a lot of friendly faces in the room. Three Aces, good to see you. Tom Thornton, good to see you. Jeff Garbaz, good to see you. Dave Narkoski, God Almighty, we've got uh, we've got Murderers Row here. This is awesome. Not sure where to begin. I may actually, though, start with a topic which I adopted as a title for the room. I don't want to go too hard on the guy, but you know, people say it's bad form to criticize people. That you should praise specifically, but criticize only generally. I disagree with that completely. And the reason is because there's so much nonsense that people are getting away with in the financial media and in FinTwit. And a lot of people are, are just getting hurt, innocent people. And you may say, well, you know, people should take responsibility for their own uh, investments and, 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 and they, and, and they should, and they do. That being said, there's literally no accountability for these people who spread, who just talk garbage, throw stuff against the wall. And it's in the financial media. I know my good friend, Tom Thornton, who's, uh, right up the top row and Tommy's a must follow if you're not already following him or you should subscribe to the service if you're not. He takes his craft very seriously and takes it personally when he gets something wrong. He'll fall on his sword. He didn't ask me to say this. We've not spoken in a week. But he's a pro. And Mr. Garbaz, Jeff Garbaz of uh, Quantitative Partners, Villa Erlinger's uh, firm, same thing. These are professionals who take great pride in their work. Unfortunately, much of FinTwit in the financial media does not hold itself to the same standards. And I think it's a travesty. And people are, people are getting hurt. It's just, it's just outrageous. And so I think someone needs to uh, sound the alarm and warn people. And just as if I made a horrendously bad call in hyperbolic fashion like many of these folks do, I don't know if I could show my, my face in public, but somehow these poseurs, these charlatans, they just, they just carry on. And I hate to say this, but Mr. Kramer deserves special mention. He's been one of the worst, one of the absolute worst um, in this regard. And people just forget about it. And he goes on to the next, to the next representation. Don't worry, we're going to get to the markets. But I just had to get this off my chest. 
And I'd like to play, let me see if I can find it here. I'd like to play for you. There's a great compilation of, um, of uh, Kramer greatest hits or, or worst hits uh, that I uh, heard uh, recently, this morning, as a matter of fact. And I, if I can find it, uh, I'd like to play it for you. Um, just give me a minute here. While I'm looking for that and fumbling around, um, I know Tom, you had, Tom Thornton, you had uh, raised your hand and wanted to come up on stage to speak. So, Tommy, why don't I turn it over to you? Um, maybe we'll get into the, maybe it'd be a good way to kick off. You could just talk about what you see going on in the markets, what's on top of mind. Meanwhile, I can scramble around and try to find the track that I'm looking for. So, good to see you, my friend, Tommy. How you been? George, um, I've been great. It's yeah, been uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tommy, speak. Tommy, speak up a little bit, please. I don't know if you're far away from the microphone or what, but just speak up a little bit, please. Okay. You know, I'm in my car. Let me just uh, let me go off Bluetooth. Let's try that. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's much better. Much better. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Uh, well, uh, thanks, George, as always, uh, for the nice compliment. I truly uh, appreciate that, and I appreciate our friendship. And I really enjoy all of your spaces. They're informative. They're truthful. Uh, and speaking of truth, I just want to say, um, so I'm, I'm friends with people that have made really big, bold calls in the market and in, in different types of markets. And the thing is, I am still friends with some of these people. I'm always going to be friends with people. Uh, they've made really bad calls. I have implored to many of them to jump on your sword, own it, move on, and, uh, you know, somewhat apologize for such a bad call. And I can go on different sides of it. It could be the bullish call in crypto. It could be the bearish call in on Tesla. It could be all these absolute fact type calls that these people make. Now, I will tell you this. I met with Jim Cramer uh, had dinner with him years ago. I found him to be a very nice, entertaining guy. And he told me a lot of what he does is entertaining. He tries to um, inform people. I think he truly cares. But there is a new level of Jim's calls that I think are getting a little extreme. Now, I will applaud him for his consistency. He's been consistent, consistent in the sense that he is super wrong on a lot of big calls that he's made. I mean, we can go back to the Bear Stearns is fine. Uh, that whole thing was was crazy. Um, making the absolute calls on there's no recession. You know, it's really hard to do that. And um, things that I like to immediately take responsibility for and 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 get past it. It's a cleansing thing. OK, I was wrong. Um you know, it's not like I'm betting my entire portfolio on one idea. I'm very diversified. I preach that. I've tried to explain to some people that have been, um, well, some different outlets that have become too one-sided on one type of asset to preach more or talk more about diversification. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, 10 different, you know, uh, Bitcoins or um cryptos, that's not diversification, uh, but more of an asset allocation for your life. Uh, one thing I will say, as far as being wrong, uh, Mike Novogratz uh, had a classy mea culpa, and he just said, look, I've got this 
tattoo, which I mean, for the love of God, why did he do that? And he said, it's a remind, it's a humbling reminder of how difficult markets can be and how they can bite you. And I think that that is a really important thing. I, I've never heard Jim Cramer um, apologize or admit that he got a, got it really wrong. And I, I think in many respects, when people do do that, they earn credibility. And uh, I think that's the important thing. Going into a little on the markets, um, I've been saying all year, we're going to have a series of bounces. They're going to be lower high bounces. They're exploitable. The last one, uh, I think, was 10% in the S&P and 12% in the NASDAQ 100. I got long. I've been trimming like mad over this week, all the long positions. I'm still barely net long, uh, but I've got a lot of cash. And markets move fast. You've got to be really quick to adjust. And I had some people say, well, why were you long at all going into the CPI? And I said, well, because if the CPI came in at 8.2 versus 8.3, it probably would have ripped. You probably would have had a 3% upsize rip uh, in the market. So I like to stay balanced. Um, I'm wrong. And in this type of market, you can afford to be wrong uh, quickly and move on. And, that, and that's important. I can be wrong to sell things too quick or, or short things and, and cover them too quick. I hope that's my big mistakes. Um, but I had to tell my people, I, I cut some longs, small losses on earlier in the week. And I said, I just don't like the look of what's going on in this range. And there's a gamma exposure under 4,100 or above 4,200. This market's going to just really, really move. So I tried to keep my exposure in line. Now, if anybody has seen or read what Stan Druckenmiller said, it's absolutely spot on. It is very hard in a bear market to be short. It is very hard to be short. It seems very easy. In hindsight, you could say, oh, that was easy. But you can get caught out in squeezes. So you have to be nimble. You have to keep diversified, uh, keep your position sizing moderate. And uh, look, I think Stan is just waiting for an up move to lay out shorts. He may not get it because look, we're, we're right at the, you know, the May lows. And if we break that this week, which we could, uh, I see a, a move, a measured move to about 3,400 to 3,500. It may not be in a week or it may not be this quarter. Uh, but I think we're going to have, uh, that's going to be the target on the downside. So I'll let everybody, uh, I'm, I'm, roasting in my car here um george take it away tommy thanks for that um love to hear your commentary you and i uh, a lot of mutual respect don't always agree but you know it's kind of funny i got pissed at you when you went long for the bats you were right and i'm just like you know what i'm too stubborn all right i covered a few shorts i still kept some on but i'm trying to just stay in gear with trend and you're more and i know people uh marveled at my use of the word adroit when i described you as the the adroit Thomas Thornton in a tweet this past week. You were more nimble and tried to catch the turn. You got it right. You were very right. Then the problem you have is, you know, okay, so you got right, and then it turns down and you're stuck long. Net, net, you probably made some money. For me, I'm just trying to get the big picture right. And I'm not, I'm not as, and also for the for the individual in the individuals in the room, maybe don't trade as well as you do. I think you know there are many ways to make money, 
And you have to consider what are you comfortable with? What's your time frame? And I really like this example because you and I have the same big picture view. It's just a question of time frames. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of listening to you speak. This is a hard business. This is a hard business, despite what Jim Cramer would have you believe. And I, 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 I value your friendship and your, your intellect time. It's wonderful to hear you. If you can stay with us and hopefully turn your air conditioning back on so you don't roast. We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, I am going to get to the Stan Druckermiller comments in a while. I do want to start off, though. This is going to be about six minutes. This is a compilation. And, and, and I'm not here to ridicule. I'm here to remind people this is a hard business, all right? And I think, Tommy, you hit the nail on the head. People who just go from one disaster to the next, no accountability, no humility. I mean, you know, if you're working at a real firm with compliance measures, you're not allowed to do this sort of thing. You may even run afoul of, 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 of laws. But in FinTwit, in, a, in on television, the financial media, people get away with murder. And I, I think all people of good conscience need to call this type of behavior out. It's just outrageous. And I don't know. I actually like Jim Cramer, but I just don't know what he thinks he's doing right now. So let me just play this for a few minutes. This is just it's a six-minute um, compilation. I'll, I'll tweet it out. A six-minute compilation of some of his worst calls of all time. So just, just, it just, you know, Tommy, what's amazing? I, I tweeted something. At the, the, the title of the room taste is Charts Suggest a Very Nice Summer for Stocks, okay? That was a freaking Jim Cramer declaration on may 31st may 31st 12 days ago and then he turns around wringing his hands on tv yesterday oh they gotta raise rates more blah 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 blah. i mean on what planet is this type of behavior acceptable and the problem is if you're not paying attention and 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 and, and you're not doing the work it sounds convincing but you got to realize this guy is just throwing stuff against the wall and there's no accountability there's no accountability. There's no apology. It's just outrageous, Tommy. Thoughts? Hey, hey, one thing. Uh, Thomas? You're breaking here. up, Tommy. Um, okay, let me just go outside my car. Um, one thing, George, I just uh, wanted yep. to mention. Two things, actually. Uh, we are doing another trader meetup for those people um, around the New York, Connecticut area at the Cisco Brewery. Not in Nantucket, but in Stanford. They have a another location. And we're doing it on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. I'll probably get there a little earlier. But if anybody wants to come up, uh, it's free beer, which is, you know, worth coming up. There should be some good traders. And, George, I hope you're, you'll come again. I, the Tommy, last I, 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 I wouldn't miss it. Maybe we'll do a space. Maybe we'll do a space that we did last time for the brewery. We'll see. I would yeah, look forward to it. That would be cool. Um, that would be great. One, th- one, thing, one thing also um, – I don't watch CNBC that much. I mean, very rarely. I, I listen. I watch Bloomberg. Um, I I found uh, a couple of years ago. I just needed to turn it off. There's too much noise, and it it was distracting. So, th- if anybody wants to try a little experiment, uh, turn it off. Watch Bloomberg. It's it, it's real business news, uh, market news. Uh, try that for a little. You know, uh, take a month and do that. Don't watch. CNBC, turn off Jim Cramer. I mean, I see his tweets and all the people that comment on it, but that might be um, something that um, is an experiment. And just, I think people will find it a little bit illuminating. 
Yeah, so. Tommy, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, 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 I've been watching. I did exactly that about a year ago. And between uh, uh, Tom Kane, Lisa Bramovitz, and Jonathan Farrow, it is infinitely miles better than CNBC. No question. CNBC, my girlfriend said to me best, CNBC is like, is like People Magazine. It's People Magazine of Finance. That's what it is. So I, I couldn't agree with you more, Tommy. All right. Uh, with that being said, uh, I want to play this. Yeah, so, Tommy, I'm going to play this Jim Cramer thing for a few minutes. Um, this will last six minutes or so. Just, It's unbelievable. I know you've all heard this before, but to hear it all put together the way this guy did is just extraordinary. So let me just play this. Hang on one second, boys and girls. Here we go. Where are we? Here we go. Is known for his bad calls, and here he is advising Mad Money viewers that Bear Stearns is fine in the spring of 2008. Just six days later, Bear Stearns would fall 90% and get bailed out at $2 per share. Okay, Peter writes, should I be worried about Bear Stearns in terms of liquidity and get my money out of there? No, no, no. Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money out. This is really, look, if there's one takeaway other than a plus 400 somebody, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. I mean, if anything, they're more likely to be taken over. Don't move your money from Bear. That's just being silly. Don't be silly. He's not saying literally, I'm asking you to buy Bear Stearns. For that, you'd have to go back a full seven weeks before the stock completely collapsed. I'm asking uh, people who are uh, watching this video to buy Bear Stearns. <laughs> now, that was seven weeks before it collapsed. Here's a clip from 2010 where Elon Musk brings up his Kramer call and says he's a contraindicator and responds to Kramer saying the Tesla IPO is, quote, not a smart investment. There are a lot of people who have looked at your IPO who have told me, you know what, I'm not sure that this is a smart investment. Our own Jim Cramer yesterday said, I'm not sure that Tesla has a business plan that's going to work. It's not a smart investment. What do you say to the skeptics who look at where Tesla is, the money that you're raising, and they say, you know what, they've got a nice roadster, but they don't have a good business plan? Well, I think, you know, uh, you know Jim, I'd say, yeah, sure, Jim, you know, we're no best stones, uh, but I think we're going to do okay. <laughs> you know, Jim, I think, recommended best stones and layman and other things. So... Yeah, frankly, it's contraindicated. On March 25th of this year, Jim Cramer said that the bear market is over. And since this call, the Nasdaq has dropped 17%, the S&P 11%, interest rates have been raised, and inflation is still at all-time highs. Maybe, Jim, you make the case, and you can make the case, that everything the professor said is known. That's it's true. all in the market. That's it. That's Jay why. Jay Powell's message, he's told you. That's why he's told we you what's coming. To, have you looked? There are 600 companies that came public in the last 18 months. I mean, there's like seven on the trade north of nine bucks. I mean, I, this is the bear market, just like 2001, except for we have a, a rates much lower. And Brian, you remember those days. I mean, those companies were all jokes. A lot of the companies, I'm looking at all the companies that are under 10. Many of them are actually making money. We are in some weird market that it's a bear market and no one called it as a bear. And I think the bear market is over. Wow, and that's a big call. Brian Zelsky, react to that. Well, I think the bear market has been over for a while when you have over 70% of the stocks in the S&P 500 down more than 10%. You have 50% down more than 50%. I'm sorry, 10%. Uh, but I think the, the key thing that is difference between 2001 is, remember, it was we were by the dip craze big time when we were still so focused on one area, that being technology. I think the market's actually done a really good job diversifying not itself. But remember, too, the, the interest rate scenario goes up because the economy is improving. 
And that should be very, very good. Remember, stocks lead earnings, which leads the economy. And so it's already in the market. We already know this stuff. And this incessant need for everybody to know everything all the time, Scott, the Fed did a wonderful job last week kind of mapping this out. So we know the chart path. Now let's invest accordingly. And that's why the market's going up. Here's Kramer saying that you can get 35 to 40% on Ethereum when it was almost at 3K. Since then, Ethereum has gone on to drop 30%. This is like, you know, we're talking money. So it's okay to say, hey, listen, made money. Uh, But I think Ethereum is terrific. I'm a believer. And I think that you could easily get 35, 40%. Moving on to the next call. Last year, Jim Kramer displayed his magnificent seven stocks. And to date, six have been killed, with the only one left being Tesla. There are thousands of stocks where earnings still matter and matter a lot. But then there are a handful of high-profile growth names where they just don't seem to mean a thing. I have a list of the most impervious ones. Tonight, I'm going to reveal them. I'm calling them the Magnificent Seven. These are seven companies where buyers don't seem to care how well the underlying companies are doing. They just want to own the stocks regardless. The Magnificent Seven have detached themselves from all metrics except the metric of wonder. In each case, the thesis is so powerful that it overwhelms any mundane attempt to figure out what the business might be worth. What matters is that every day seems like a buying opportunity, whether the stock is up or down. The first member of the Magnificent Seven? Hmm, Netflix. The earnings themselves are simply an abstraction for these thesis stocks. And any disappointment is simply one more reason to buy them. Netflix is down 61%, Roku 70%, Peloton 83%, Square 60%, PayPal 68%, and Zoom 65%. And finally, Tesla the past year is up 25%. Continuing with stock calls, in February of this year, Kramer tweeted, winning stocks I like, Upstart and Airbnb. Since then, Upstart's down about 80%, Airbnb 40%. In April of last year, when Coinbase just went public, Kramer endorsed the company, saying it's a $475 stock. Since going public, Coinbase is down over 80%. Now, I'd love it if you can get Coinbase in the low 300s around 10 times sales. That seems unlikely. If you're willing to pay 15 times sales, uh, not unreasonable, then this is a $475 stock. That's the upper end of what I'd be willing to pay for a large position. Still, you've got my blessing to put on a decent position at the opening, maybe half of what you'd normally purchase in one go, and, and then buy more, but only if it comes in. The bottom line, if you, like me, well, then you're a big believer in cryptocurrency and you will want to own Coinbase for the long haul. Coinbase isn't the only going public company Kramer has endorsed at all-time highs, only like clockwork to immediately draw mere hours after making his call. So Lyft went public in March of 2019, and since then, it's dropped to under $20 a share, down 75% from its all-time high in Kramer's call. So finally, we already mentioned Netflix, which Kramer endorsed last year. But he also tweeted in January of this year, Netflix, buy, only for the stock to tank 70%. So, I mean, just look at that tweet. Kramer says, buy Netflix, and boom, six red candles, six days in a row. And I mean, that is actually hard to do. Like, even if you tried, you couldn't make worse calls than this. So many of the comments in response to these Kramer calls were simply about, how the hell is this guy still on TV? I mean, just his call from 2008 should have been enough. But nope, here we are, and Kramer is still at it. All right, so I'm going to leave it at that. There's a bunch more I could have thrown in, but I think you guys get the idea. Don't trust Kramer. And please subscribe. Thank you guys for watching. Wow. I mean, what do you do with that? And again, this is a hard business. If you're any good in this business, you're wrong 40% of the time. That's not the point. People can make fun of all my mistakes. That's not the point.
I've made more mistakes than anybody else, probably because I'm older than anybody else. It's just how do you go from one disaster to another in hyperbolic, sensationalist fashion with no remorse, no humility, no apology? I mean, it's just staggering. I will uh, put the link to that um, to that video. I'll tweet that out in a while. But I, I just, you know, all kidding aside, this needs to stop. It really does. There's a lack of regulation here. As is always the case, the regulators don't keep up with technology. I'm thinking of Twitter now. They're, Jim Cramer's not the only one. Many in the crypto world. Raoul Powell deserves particular mention. There's a guy who also used to work at Goldman Sachs. What he's doing is maybe not illegal because he's in the Cayman Islands, but it's certainly unethical. And again, no apology, no remorse, no humility. Mike Novogratz, Chamath, Kathy Wood. I mean, seriously? Could you imagine any fiduciary any investment advisor who has any conscience proclaiming that their stocks will go up 50 or 60% annually for five years? I mean, enough. I'm making a serious point. This is not a ha-ha-ha, let's dump on these people. What are we doing here? Where are the regulators? Where's Gary Gensler? I think most of us were brought up to do the right thing, not to do what you can get away with. But if you're after eyeballs and clicks and it sells, go for it. That's what these people are doing. Jim Cramer, I ask you to stop. Ralph Powell, I ask you to stop. Kathy Woods, stop. You know what? In the end, it's not really going to matter what I think or any of us think. Mr. Market is going to fix this. Mr. Market is in the process of fixing this. We'll get on to that in a little while. Many things I can talk about here. Um, Motorhead, please hold on for a second. Um, okay. I'd, like, I'd like to, we'll get to Tesla in a bit. I'd like to go to Mark Newman, though, because Mark, if you're uh, listening, uh, you and I have talked about this sort of behavior for uh, a while. I know you have opinions. Mark, uh, if you're there, uh, could you unmute yourself if you, have, if you want to weigh in, Mark? Hey, George. Hey, everybody. Um, you know, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on what Tommy said, uh, and he just hits on he hit on a lot of great points, which I think everyone in the market needs to always have an idea on their time horizon. And Tommy is one of the best at calling market turns I've seen in a long time. And one of my buddies on the West Coast said, do I know Tommy? And I said, yeah, he's very good at turns, market turns. And my buddy subscribed and said, he helps me when there's an inflection point. And I need to decide to sort of cover a hedge or maybe add to a long. And then Tommy mentioned Stan Druckenmiller. Legend, obviously, more money than everybody. And he has always been a long-term investor thematically when he's done his best, right? And he's short-term. He can always be made to look sort of silly. Recall, like, getting carried out in the NDX uh, in the spring of 00. Stan, you know, has a legendary story of just flipping around and getting all caught up. And I think everyone who uses or leans on or, you know, listens to guys like Tommy, guys like Stan, etc., 
you know, you always have to have that context of what am I playing for? And like even Tommy highlighted Stan saying that it's hard to make money short. Yes, I think it is if you're trying to trade around it, right? Because I think in this tape, this environment, it almost feels like shorts are investments and the longs are trades. And I think that you have to define your context, your, your horizon in all these trade situations. Tommy nailed the bottom a few times on these bounces, right? And George, you were saying how he was like, you know, frustrating guys who were like leaning short, whatever, by being so right. And I also think that Tommy sounds like he is a very good short-term trader. And if you're, go if you're, you're trading with Tommy and you're not trading sort of the stylistic way Tommy does, which it seems is short-term and seemingly very successful, by the way, if you go into Tommy's trades or you lean with Tommy or trade with Tommy, you can't have a sort of varying time horizon because you have to have a defined time horizon or you can get caught. Right. And I think that's very important in this. Yeah. Day, yeah, this yeah, 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 yeah. Mark hundred percent. You and I are both vying for president or chairman of the Tom Thornton fan club. hundred percent. I just want to say what you said another way, which is, we're just going to repeat what you said for emphasis. And you know, this. there are some guys even leave Tommy out of it. You, you got to pick your time horizon, whether you're short term, medium term, long term. And you got to focus on it. You can't drift from one to the next. So if you get, get caught in between, sort of like in tennis, you either can stay on the baseline or you can rush to the net. If you're in the middle, you get screwed up. I think that's what you're saying, and I couldn't agree with you more. And Tommy, Tommy's great at rushing the net and, and, and getting the short-term wiggles. I'm not as good as he is, and so I I, 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 I continue to want to stay on the baseline and, 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 and use my ground game. So, sorry to interrupt you, Mark. I just wanted to elaborate on that point. But, Mark, could you speak a little bit to um, the lack of integrity and lack of accountability in FinTwit and in financial media and on the street? Yeah, you know, that's, that's another thing. I'm amazed at the number of, uh, number of folks out there who, uh, you know, George, you, you highlighted to me, I think you were the one, one of the ones who said it first. You tell the truth. You're trying to help people. If you tell people what you want to, they want to hear, you're helping yourself. And I think that when you see folks doubling down and saying to everyone, keep buying the dips and those kinds of things, you're sort of pushing the narrative that you think will get you more following, more coverage. You don't really care about being right. You just can care that people are following you and what you've said sounds really cool. But in the end, you know, the idea is to educate people so they don't make the same mistakes, repeat making mistakes. And, you know, the, you know, in the empire of, of, of lies, truth is the enemy, right? And we continue to talk about things that are real, things that are actual. And I think there's a lot of theory and wish and want in the FinTwit universe. And I think that, you know, you see guys with tons and tons of followers saying, oh, Bitcoin's going to a million. Well, okay, I think that's what your followers want to hear. I don't think that's really scientifically tested. Um, and there's a lot of that out there. And, 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 you know, we are in an era, an age, I think, of, you know, bigger and bigger frauds. And I think it's Internet enabled. It's related to technology and it's related to the Fed. And I think we're seeing that now. You need to be very careful if people are saying things that you are like, that's completely crazy. You're probably right. It probably is pretty crazy. The more preposterous it sounds, the likelihood that it probably is. Well, extremely well said, Mark. Tommy, do you want to uh, respond to that? Tommy? 
Please unmute yourself, Thomas. Hello. Uh, okay, can you hear me now? Yep. Hold on. Okay. Yeah, uh, we well, hear thanks, you. Mark. That's you. very nice. Okay. Um, thanks. That was very nice of you to say. Look, I, I, I sometimes. Um, I'm not necessarily a short-term trader. I'm not a day trader. I'd like to have some positions work a little longer, quite frankly. Um, some of the long positions that I recently put on, and it was, you know, across different sectors. Uh, I would have liked to seen them play out a little bit more, but I got enough out of them. I, you know, squeezed the lemon in this bear market uh, for all the juice on that bounce. So that's great. Um, it is harder. And just one thing about um, being like short uh, in a bear market uh, our firm, our hedge fund, uh, was notoriously known for being net short um, in its existence for 11 years. And we, we, we lost money one year. We lost money in 2008 because we were down 1%. And I was pissed about that. But regardless, um, it's really hard when you're, when you're long something and it's working and it's, it's, it's going up. I have a story of the guy that I know that... Um, he got into Bitcoin in like 2013, $30,000. He cashed out in late 2017 at, at the, that peak. And he said he was so stressed out watching it go up. And he was so right. And he was making so much money that it, it like he was panicked. And it's the same way sometimes in a market, if you are max short and short a billion dollars of financials. We had much more than front point. They got the notoriety. But I'll tell you, it was really hard. Tommy, you're breaking up. Position Tommy, I have, the up. gains that I have are going to be gone. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Tommy, why, why don't you come back when you got a better connection? Let's move on. Um, okay. You got a lot of great people in this room here. It's unbelievable. Uh, so Tommy, just, just mute it, please, because your mic is not really working properly. Um, so I want to get to Motorhead, and then we've got this is this is shaping up to be just an extraordinary room between Newman and Thornton, and we got Michael Green in the room, John Roke, Michael Belkin, Three Aces. I'm just going Jeff Garbaz. I'm just going down the list. Dave Nikoski. This is one for the ages. All right, so we got a lot a lot of wood to chop. So let's turn now to whose um, reference was made earlier to uh, Stan Druckenmiller and comments that he had. I believe he appeared at the uh, Iverson conference uh, this past week. Stan is uh, the GOAT, greatest of all time. If there was a Mount Rushmore for uh, hedge fund managers, he'd be on it. I think he's had never had a down year in his 30-odd year career or thereabouts. And so when Stan speaks, I listen. And I'm going to – I'll tweet this out later, but I just want to – uh, briefly paraphrase from some some of his comments from the transcript of his remarks earlier this uh, this week. Well, let's take about a minute. So let me just ramble here. I'll paraphrase on the bear market. My best guess is that we are six months into a bear market. For those tactically trading, it's possible the first leg that of that has ended, but I think it's highly highly probable that the bear market has a ways to run. Two on a soft or hard landing. If you're predicting a soft landing, it's going on de going against decades of history. Three, I'm doing nothing. Currently, I'm going in every day and looking at my screen, but I'm pretty much taking a break. I've lived through enough bear markets and um, that if you get aggressive on the short side, you can get your head you can get your head ripped off in rallies. Four, 
on the past few years of a bull run. That period was incredibly costly because a lot of assets were purchased during that period that a lot of people moving at the risk curve will lose a lot of money on. Next, on owning bonds. While I'm not comfortable owning bonds, I'm much less comfortable being short fixed income to the degree that I was six years ago on a recession. Given the extent of the asset bubble and destruction in the markets, given what's going on in the Ukraine, given zero COVID policy in China, I don't take a lot of comfort from that. So I assume and pretty strongly that soon we're going to have a recession sometime in 2023. Seven, advice for new investors. If you're not really passionate, if you don't love this stuff, go do something else. I have guys who have IQs 50, 60 points higher than me who stink in this business. Learn all the asset categories and how they integrate. And so that's pretty much it. So again, this is this is this business is not easy. It's particularly not busy easy now. Those words are from one of the all-time greats, Stan Druckermiller. Um, so I, uh, I, you know, I think we, I think we need to take 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 heed of that. Um, you know, it was only a week or two ago when everyone was convinced that uh, bond yields had topped, that the bottom was in. We're gonna have a nice summer summer rally. You know, where I was picking on Kramer earlier about how the, the, the summer's looking to be a very nice time for equities, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it's the nature of bear market rallies that, um, you know, they're unpredictable and um, they're very hard to trade. And, you know, again, the great John Roke, I don't know if John's still in the room, but we've mentioned this many times in this room. John compiled a table of the 2000, the epic 2000, 2002 bear market, where NASDAQ declined by 80%. By the way, I'm smiling right now because I just noticed here Bitcoin is down 2.5% as we speak to 28.4. How could one, how, what could possibly go wrong? Um, <laughs> anyway, in two and a half years, NASDAQ fell 80% in the 2000 2002 bear market. I believe 46% of those trading days, the market was actually up. And there were 15 counter trend rallies of 10% or more, 10 counter trend rallies of 15% or more. So I think you have to. Figure out what you're good at or what you're comfortable with. Mark Newman was making the point earlier. I'm more of an investor than a trader. Uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll peel some shorts back when it gets really trashed. But my core position doesn't change. In a bear market, you only can be uh, short or, or flat, short or flat. In a bull market, you only can be long or flat, long or flat. you got to stay with trend. And trying to can- trade counter-trend rallies is extremely difficult. If you're as adroit as Mr. Thornton, maybe you can do it. That's beyond my pay grade. So, um, you know, I just kind of grin and I try to peel a little bit back when things go too much in my favor and, and zig and zag. But I think we are a long, long way uh, from the end of this from the end of this this bear market. The bear market's only just gotten started, in my opinion. This is not the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. And for those of you who were in the room a couple of weeks ago, when James Ferguson um, gave a real tour de force as to why inflation is a problem and not going away anytime soon. If you haven't heard that interview, you should go back and um, uh, you should go back and listen to it. Um, I think Jerome Powell and the Fed would learn a lot from it. They're just completely wrong, have zero credibility. Um, and the whole street, I'm not going to mention names, but virtually every freaking Wall Street economist was talking, oh, inflation's peaked, inflation's peaked. Um, I'll read you some other stuff later. If you look at alternative calculations of inflation, um, you know, if you look at the way inflation was calculated back in the 70s or 80s, it's in the double digits. You can splice and dice and wordsmith all you want, but no, 
Uh, I, I like Jim Bianco's definition of inflation the best. Or when we talk about transitory, transitory being if you don't do anything, will inflation go down sufficiently on its own accord? And by that definition, it ain't transitory. I don't want to get into the argument. Well, you know, it's 8.2, it's 8.6. Oh, look at the replay. Oh, his foot was on the end line. Bullshit. All the inflation uh, apologists have been completely wrong. Completely wrong. And they have no intellectual standing to make the case that inflation is not a problem. Uh, I find it extremely interesting. This is another point I want to come on to. That real bond yields actually went up this week. And that's quite interesting. Um, there's a fantastic web uh, podcast I urge everyone to listen to. I tweeted it out a few days ago from Louis Gav of GavCal. Uh, there was a lot of stuff in there that we've all heard before. What particularly caught my attention was his idea of the deglobalization, not of trade flows, we know that already, but of capital flows. And speaking about how you know all these surpluses have been amassed uh, by other countries having recycling them into uh, assets in Europe and the U.S., particularly, you know, be it U.S. treasuries, real estate, uh, equities, et cetera, et cetera. And that in the brave new world we live in, post-Ukraine invasion and the sanctions, that maybe it's just not going to play that way anymore. And if that's the case, there's profound implications for real interest rates in the United States. So I maintain my bearish view on rates. I've been completely right. Everyone who's been, been saying the opposite has been completely wrong. And if I sound like I'm testy, yeah, I am, because I'm sick of hearing the bullshit from people. John Roke, who's been completely right, uh, uh, was calling for months for a 3% target. He's now calling for 4%. Uh, and that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you have all these people out there who have this sort of simple framework, assumes correlations don't shift. Well, if growth goes down, that means inflation has to go down. It means you should buy bonds leaving out all the other things that are going on in the, on in the world, such as the uh, changing geopolitical dimensions. They're completely missing it. This is as Andrew Smithers, who's still alive, uh, former um, strategist for uh, uh, S.G. Warburg, now on his own. This is the worst case of stockbroker economics, completely bereft of any analytical rigor, and, and it's just brainless, superficial brainlessness. And that's why the street's completely wrong on this. So... You know, it's interesting. The market's crashing, yet we've got the 10-year up to 315. It's about to make a new cycle high. Uh, oil's barely budged. Crude went out. WTO went out at 120. Uh, a dollar is cycling back up again through 104. So we've got the triple demerit scenario of rising interest rates, a rising dollar, and rising oil prices. Uh, at a time when the flows have still been strong into equities, but at some point, I believe these guys are going to blink. I mean, the market's been this bad despite positive inflows. Just imagine, just imagine for a second if the retail crowd loses some of its conviction. And, you know, at a certain point, the pain will be big enough where they're like, they're going to say, get me out. When it's going to happen, I don't exactly know. Um, so let's move on to some other speakers. Uh, Audrey uh, and then uh, Bick. Audrey, uh, you please unmute yourself. Okay. I mean, sorry, sorry, had to unlock my phone. Um, I, I don't know if you want me to speak right now. I was going to backpedal back to Kramer a little bit. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You can talk about anything you want, just no Tesla. That's all. This okay. Grand Rose, for everybody in this room, no more Tesla talk. Okay. Okay. Go, go, might, go ahead. I might say the Tesla word once, but I'm not going to talk about it. Um, so I just wanted to like talk about Kramer mainly and the fact that uh, there's no accountability where he's concerned. I, 
my personal narrative is that um, my dad, you know, committed suicide during the dot com crash. And before he did that, 24 seven, he had Kramer on. And, you know, a lot of mentally ill people, you know, turn to drugs, turn to alcohol. Guess who my dad turned to? Kramer. So I, to this day, I cannot like be in a room with Kramer on. It leaves such a bad, he leaves such a bad taste. His voice, it, it just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. But the bigger thing I wanted to talk about is like why we, we kind of discussed this, I think in Peter Atwell's uh, room, but why are people gravitating to idols? Like we talked about like, you know, the NFTs, the crypto, the Tesla, the ARC. I mean, I, I realize we're in an everything bubble, but I go in rooms like all the time. I'm in a crypto room. I'm in a Tesla room. I'm in a gold and silver room. I'm in an energy room. I hear the same thing. They're bullish. We're going to make it. Everything's going to be great. Now, granted, energy has made it. It's been doing great and everything. But I'm just like, it's all the same. Is it because like our, you know, a country is supposed to have like a strong culture? Is it because we don't have a strong culture? Is it like, I just don't understand why, number one, why there's no accountability and why we're having these uh, factions where, where people are looking for salvation in any way possible to find some sort of hope. I guess that's the, that's the question. Like what's going to happen? Obviously they're going to get hurt, but like, why, why are we breaking up into these groups? So I think, I think it's a, a strength in numbers thing. Like they believe that there's strength in numbers. And if, if I believe like they found someone to confirm their bias. And so then you're looking at a small faction of people like, I mean, George has 900 people in this room, right? So you look at it and you go, there's 900 people who feel the same way, right? We're going to win. So it's it's this strength in numbers, but yeah, like it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, yeah, that doesn't, with, that doesn't actually work. And I also, I, think it's, uh, I also think yes. it's, it's a, um, it's almost like, I, I call it lazy trading, right? Because they will spend hours in these spaces listening to someone else tell them they're like give them confirmation bias that they don't go and educate themselves on how all of this really works yeah and, it's just what, really what, scary because every room's the same exact thing we're all going to make it right. we're all bullish right. we'll be okay it's almost like the foreboding of like what george keeps saying things are going to get so much worse and no one's listening no one sees it correct it's really and, sad and, yeah a hundred percent and and it is it is sad to see and and god forbid you try to help them help anyone with that because then you're against their narrative and you're you're you know you're this you're yeah. that you're shill you're 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 turning against an entire community of people how dare you you know that yeah. kind of thing so you can't even help anyone too so yeah it's sad but sometimes like i'm to the point where they're gonna have to look this is maybe harsh but part of a healthy market is that people get blown out, right? They, like people have to go bankrupt. Like that's just what it is. That's part of a, of a well-functioning market and not this irrational market that we live in where everybody wins and it's bulls, bulls, bulls all the time. That's not, that's not a healthy market. So like it's sad to see and you can like look at people and go, you're going to get blown out. You're going to go bankrupt. You're putting your whole 401k and I feel really bad for you. But if you're not willing to get any help or educate yourself, then you're just going to have to be the sacrificial lamb. Right. That's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. So, so Amy, that, that's great. Let me just pile in on that. Part of this, I mean, th this is, this is the direct consequence of the most irresponsibly reckless monetary policy in history. And the trend is your friend. 
and it's it's recency bias. People keep doing more of what's working, and they keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and then you get a regime change, and now the boat's flipped, and they're caught the wrong way. So it's sort of a mutual admiration society where it's like, you know, I'm good, you're good, we're all good, right? It's This is sort of like a generalization of the AMC, the pathetic AMC rooms. And we should actually should get my good friend Mark Cahotes up here to talk a little bit because he and I may have the misfortune of going into these rooms and trying to convince some of these people that maybe, just maybe, there was something wrong with their investment thesis. But they're trapped, they're along, they're the wrong way, and... You know, they just they just can't, you know, there's something very cathartic about taking a loss. It, it, it just it, it's not the loss that kills you. It's the mental capital that you that you waste by just staring at the position and being in denial. Once you take the loss, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. You can start over. These people are all stuck and they're caught on the wrong side of things. And they have charlatans like Kathy Wood and Jim Cramer. Leading them on, again, it's it's it, 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 and so and so. It, there's complete been complete regulatory failure. There are no adults in the room, and and you have a whole generation of investors who are going to be completely destroyed. And this is not without precedent. I can remember starting my career at Fidelity in the '80s, hearing stories of what happened to people in the in the great you know nifty fifty bull market. And, and, and it, it took it took a decade or two for them to come back, and then we blew them up again in, in 2000. And now we're blowing them up again, and this is tragic. But this this everything bubble, this is far bigger than anything we've seen before, and it's going to have far more uh, disastrous and long-reaching implications, in my opinion, than anything we've seen before. This is going to be a complete and utter wipeout. The fact that Kathy Wood is still taking in money. Despite being down, I believe, almost 60% this year and 75% from the top, need I say more? This market will not bottom until that type of behavior has reversed itself. And so I, I, I think, I mean, Audrey, I feel for you. I'm, 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 you know, it's horrible to hear what happens to your father, but I'm really glad that you told that story because this is not a game. This is not a game. No, thank you. Yeah, it's not. And I, I wanted I, to say that. Well. I can't, Sorry, oh, no, it's okay. I, I can't hold Kramer for my, you know, responsible for my dad's actions. But what I can just say is I can't listen to his voice. Every time I hear his voice, there's that association. And, and if, if, if people in my family, I mean, if my dad, if because of this, you know, my family got burnt, think about how many other families are going to get burnt from, yeah, Kathy Wood, from Kramer, from all those charlatans, like you said. I mean, it's just going to get. I mean, exponentially worse. It's worth it. And Audrey, Audrey, there is no shame. There's no sense of decency. There's no accountability. I mean, seriously. I mean, it's it's enough to make any person of good conscience have have, have, have their blood boil. It's outrageous. Hey, hey, George, have you seen, I know how you like to also talk about Tiger. Have you seen, take a look at the chart in the nest. The VC valuations are down crypto level carnage 60 percent plus there's a chart in the nest there for you yeah, Audrey, if it helps i i pretty much fade everything jim kramer calls so yeah i just miss the reverse <laughs> yeah. i do but i don't only i like i said i don't like to listen to him when i see you know something someone tweeted i i go oh okay yeah, and, but, and, yeah. And, and, and by the way, three aces. We'll get to the tiger in a minute, but 
Thraces, if you could please throw up with an S, go look at Inverse Kramer. If you could throw something up in there. So, Audrey, I don't know if you've seen oh, it's it. Great. But there's, a, there's, there's a Twitter handle, Inverse Kramer. And it was, sorry as a joke, but it's actually serious. They keep track. They keep score of everything that Kramer recommends. And they advise to do the opposite. And that has been freaking money. Absolute money. So, again, it's, it's Inverse Kramer. Definite follow for anyone paying attention. Um, so again, Audrey, I'm sorry to hear your story, but thank you for that. And you actually, I mean, we can't change, obviously we can't take back what happened to your father, but I just hope people hear your message because, you know, unfortunately Kramer's listened to by millions and millions of people. And, you know, this is, you know, I'll play it later. I'm sure you've all, I'll play it later, but you know, the, 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 the clip where he was a few years ago, uh, worshiping, um, Elizabeth Holmes as the next Steve Jobs. Like, are you serious? I mean, I'm told, I don't know if it's true or not that, he's a little bit on the spectrum uh i don't know um but he just he worships he's such a narcissist he just worships the adulation that he gets and it's just horrible audrey again thank you so much for speaking up i really appreciate it thank you george hey george just you know the thing for me about all of these people they all share the same thing in common including the maxis and the rest of them on twitter and the various groups out there there's absolutely no regard for risk and i'm just curious george in your 40 years history and you know all the reading you've done and everything else have you ever seen a group of maxis you know uh you know you know things only go up crowd in the history of the markets make it out alive no I, i've never seen no. a group of them this reminds me the most this reminds me the most of um it's actually japan 1989 i, I actually think that's the roadmap Nikkei peaked at 39,000, went to seven. Today we're 25, wherever we are. And this is 33 years later. We are, we have seen valuations that I will suggest we will never, ever, ever see again in our lifetimes, ever. This is preposterous. The EBITDA, the non-GAAP earnings, the this, the that, it's all bullshit. This is all driven by the most irresponsible monetary policy in history. Well, and, it's also coming from, like, the top, right? I mean, look at Adam Aaron. Adam Aaron is loving that he's some sort of D-rate celebrity. He's leading these the retail investors on by telling them they own 90% of the club. 100%. 100%. All of 100%, these things. So it's 100%. 100%. 100%. And, but, yeah. but, 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 Amy, what I would say is let's not get caught in the weeds here. Whether it's, no, him, or it's him or it's that jackass Kevin O'Leary or whatever, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. There was just a, there's just a tsunami of liquidity came in, and these guys jumped on it and surfed with it, and they went with it, and it was it was their way of cheating, getting ahead, being relevant, making a lot of money. They're complete con men, all of them, all of them. Well, here's and, the here's the the outcome of the trillions and trillions of dollars in free stimulus. This is what you get. That's what like I hope that the three thousand dollar checks are worth it because this is what we get. It's going to come from somewhere. Nothing's free. Hundred percent, hundred percent, Amy. Hey, Danny, good to see you. What's up, man, Danny? George, how you doing, man? I call me. I thought I was going to take good. the day off from the market on a Saturday, but you wrote, you got me roped in with this conversation. I just you, D D Danny, yeah. Danny, you can't, you can't wait. <laughs> on, man. I just have one comment, I think, and dovetail with your comment about where we're headed. We never dealt with the aftermath of the global financial crisis because of all the federal government intervention, right? Fed, Treasury programs, everything we saw. So part of this unwind that I think people are missing is that we have to now pay the piper, so to speak, for some of that 
Um, and so, yes, are the banks safer than they were? Absolutely. They're very, very well capitalized. But all the other things, the cushioning of the blow, price discovery, there's been no price discovery in bonds or equities now for 13 years. And so that's a lost art. And that's why it's so it's going to feel harsh. And that's why it is going to be harsh. So I just wanted to tell people out there having lived through that crisis and then, you know, watching all the the, the PPIP, the, the TALF, the TARP, QE1, QE2, QE3, all these things that happened. We now have to unwind that. And it's just, it, it's pretty simple. You don't have to go much farther than just that thought process and that type of liquidity, $9 trillion. I mean, that's it. So I just wanted to mention that and kind of tie those two things together because for people that have been through all these iterations and various phases of the market, to me, this is now we can have to face what we didn't really have to face the first time around. So I just wanted to add that. Danny, thank you for that. Hundred percent. First time you and I actually speak, but I've heard a lot about you, and we got mutual friends. And yeah, couldn't agree. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's just, and, and you know, the funny thing, I'll pile on with you, and that is, you know, everyone says, "Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed." That that's what they said on the way up. Well, in point of fact, to your point, don't fight the Fed. They want the market to go down. They want to tighten financial conditions. Okay. Then if you start on top of wondering about the whole you know, income inequality, social agenda thing. It's a whole other story, right? They want the market to go down. But all the apologists, the Kramers of the world, and all the rest, all of a sudden they forgot, don't fight the Fed. And so, no, this is going to be, and, and again, I think people are going to just be shocked, shocked by not just the depth of this decline, but by the duration of it. There's no coming back from this. None. Zero. And now we're going to go to Michael Kay. Who is going to going to speak to Michael? Please unmute yourself. Why this is the maybe the end of the beginning, nothing more. That whereas heretofore we've had, you know, we saw the multiple compression part of the part of the decline. Now the economic downturn is starting, and now the earnings decline is just getting started. So, Michael K, happy Saturday. Um, what's going on, my friend? Hey George, happy Saturday, hey, everyone. Um, you know, I know a lot of people in this room are very focused on the, the near term and day to day. And, you know, a lot of the uh, minutia, and I don't mean that in a way to downplay it, you know, people focus on different things. I, I'm kind of more sitting back from, you know, the, the macro perspective, um, not trying to make calls, you know, the short term, you know, I think we're in a bear market. I don't think it's over until the economy bottoms. And when I sit back and hear everyone talk about how all these things are different this time, I just keep going back to the simple, idea that you know the economy is slowing for the same reason it has always slowed going back 100 years rates go up the cost of goods go up the cost of money goes up and the economy slows with a lag and we're seeing it playing out you know in in, in, the, in the way it always does where housing gets hit first along with multiples and then it hit, hits earnings so you know i don't have anything new to add george but you know you know you and i have been having the same discussion for months and the only thing that's changed is time has moved on and so is the cycle. So um, I, I try not to get caught up in the, in the near-term stuff. Uh, obviously, there's great opportunities here for traders. That's not really um, my wheelhouse. I just think you want to remain risk-off until we're, 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 we're within the vicinity of a, an economic bottom, and that's not for at least another year. I don't think people appreciate how far out that is, even, you know, you know, Drucken Miller obviously makes makes a lot of big comments, and you know maybe we are certainly six months into a bear market rally. Um, does it mean we're only halfway through? I don't know. I, I would say no. Hundred percent agree, Michael. I find it hilarious still 
pathetic and hilarious. There's some people still talk on television or in FinTwit that, you know, we're toying with the bear market. We're toying with the bear market. Because the soundbite S&P is not down 20%, we're toying with the bear market. I mean, it's just like, what planet are these people on? It's mind, It's just mind-boggling. Um, well, don't discount the, the amount of people who have never traded a bear market. They have, to, they have to cater to them. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I think, and I think, George, one of the big mistakes people are making is they're looking at the market and thinking the only reason the market goes down is because when the economy goes down or earnings go down. And that hasn't been the case. You know, most of the sell-offs in the last 20 years, probably going back even farther, or most of the sell-offs in history are a function of slower growth, not higher rates and higher inflation. And so I think people are not conditioned or they are conditioned to think stocks down, economy down. So we're pricing that is that slowdown, and I can't think of a time where we've had such a sell-off that's not been due to earnings in uh, in a very long time. Yeah, because we've been in this forty-year great moderation post-Volcker era, and you know rates of uh, rates have only gone down and to the right, and therefore valuations on a secular basis only down uh, up and to the right, and so that game is over, over. Um, hey, hey, Cantro, how, how, is this consumer sentiment read 50-year low? Is that material, and what, wh- where would you put that in your deck of cards? Yeah, so uh, I learned a lesson, a good lesson. You know, it's, it's good, to be, you know, good to be wrong because you hopefully learn from it. And I, I remember back in, I think it was in late 07 probably. I'd have to go back to the data and look. And, and I remember, you know, I was still a youngin'. Um, and seeing consumer sentiment fall to really low levels, maybe it was in early 08 and late 07. And I did a study that probably everyone on Wall Street still does. You know, we get to a weak data point. You say, well, in the next 12 months, how are markets doing when you hit such a, you know, bearish level of sentiment? And, you know, if you do that analysis on any, anything, it's always positive because stocks historically generally go up. And so I learned the ugly lesson. Uh, it was dead wrong that, you know, in a, in a downturn, in a bear market, sentiment isn't your friend as a contrarian indicator um at least you know certainly not from a, a an intermediate term perspective maybe the short term again that's not my focus but uh yeah all-time low in consumer sentiment it damn well should be there can you think of a worse time for the consumer yeah and and, and, and Cantor, i'll just pile on that one um i think earnings are going to be absolutely horrific i mean you saw You've seen it with some of the retailers already, and then just this past week, Target having to revise down again. I mean, they 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 was it was a nuclear bomb went off a few weeks ago, and they revised down again this past week, saying they're only going to make two billion instead of five billion, whatever the number was, or two percent instead of five percent. Can't remember. I was on vacation. I think I think earnings are about to completely implode, completely implode. And you 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 put them. You've always pointed out, you know, you don't know what the PE is because. You can't be sure what the E is going to be. But if I tell you the E is going to be much lower than you think, and, and, and then as you've been pointing out, you know, rising bond yields, increasing credit spreads, $50 in double jeopardy, that spells lower PEs, put that in the blender and see what you come up with. You know, it's, 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 it's easy to see. In fact, I'd be shocked, shocked if the market doesn't go, the S&P doesn't go at least 3,000 from here. And if that happens, you know, you can plug in whatever number you want for Kathy Woods or the Qs or whatever. Or, or most of the rubbish that most retail investors own going to get absolutely destroyed. I don't know, Cantor, you want to push back on that? 
no, I mean, you're, you're singing the song we've been singing together. Um, again, you know, everyone wants to know how bad it's going to be or how, you know, how bad can the data get, how bad can earnings get. And, you know, the reality is anyone who's being honest, you don't know. You know, we can't model shocks for the system, and a, and a recession is a shock. Uh, and so we know it's down. We know it's worse. We have an idea of how long it's going to uh, get worse for. But how much can the market go down here? Who, you know, it's, 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 it's a near impossible question to answer. But certainly the, the, the symmetry of risk is not even, and it's skewed to the downside. We know that with, with pretty good confidence. So, you know, in the next week, I have no idea what stocks are going to do, but, you know, strong conviction that over the next 12 months, there's very limited upside and very big downside. Hey, George, let me, just add, let me add one thing, because uh, my, Danny Moses was on just before, legendary, really uh, good to hear his voice. Um, talk, talking about having what we build up on from 09, right, the expansion, $9 trillion, et cetera, the order of magnitude of some of these stocks is, in terms of the bubble, back in 00, Cisco was the biggest at $550 million. Let's talk about the fall of 21 and how many stocks were above a trillion. Was it five? Four or five at least? So the order of magnitude that we've built up, having not cleaned out anything prior in prior crises, and we just layered on a lot of paper, the order of magnitude now is, I'm saying, 4x what it was back then. That's just a guesstimate ballpark, but how far it can go on the unwind? We have an order of magnitude to clean out that no one's seen before. For sure, and, 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 and dude, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that the public's not buying this market on the way down. Otherwise, I might get really worried. Huh? It's just unfreaking believable. All right, so so all right, so hold on. So time out here. I want to do Tommy with a quick follow up, and then uh, Michael Green, and then Jeff Garbaz. Tommy, you got a you got a follow up? Yeah. Hey, hey guys. Um, Michael, you, you had a really good point that uh, you know we've seen this market. Uh, well many of the stocks in the market go down and it's not because of earnings. So this, you know, every market decline and, and increase for that matter has a little different taste and a little different uh, mix to it. And so that is, in my opinion, something that is really remarkable. Now, Intel, you know, guided uh, lower on their earnings call. And then they were at a, at a conference this week and they, they're, IR or CFO was really, really bearish and that will bleed into other tech names. It's a cockroach theory that's going to start happening. And George, you're absolutely right. The next big part is the earnings uh, decimation. And it's going to be the big names too, because you can't just have the, the minions fall up buy from the big boys and they will, it'll all cascade. So I think that that's the next part of this bear market. And it, it's really, actually, it's been really important to, to watch and listen um, to some of the conferences, if you can get online and listen to what some of the um, CFOs and CEOs are talking about, because they're really giving good clues on what is happening with their businesses. And so um, it's a little different every time, every market. And, you know, we're coming into July earnings, and I think you're going to start hearing more uh, earnings uh, guide downs, and, and I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna have Apple uh, and some others. I mean, Microsoft guided down on FX. I mean, for the love of God, wh what forex are they trading? Because the dollar hasn't been that wacky. Uh, so it's um, it's a, it's a mystery to me. But you're gonna see more guide downs, and that's what 
you're, you, the landmines for being long in, in this market. And the last thing I'll say, retail has been, they, they have inflows all year. And I said the other day on one of my notes, the retail has not capitulated. And that is the most important thing because that there's so much inflows in from 2021. I mean, there was a trillion dollars of inflows. We haven't seen that money come out of the market. It's been evaporated in many respects, but it's not out of the market. We don't see that happening yet. So that's the next several phases of the decline. So that's it. Thanks, oh, Tommy. Wait, one last thing. Yeah. Um, yep. Again, for, for those that I was on earlier and I was at the beach, the clouds came out, I went home. Um, <laughs> we are doing a trader meetup in Stanford, Connecticut on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. It's at the Cisco Breweries, not the Nantucket one. It is the Nantucket one, but it's the Nantucket uh, offshoot in uh, Stanford. And so anybody that wants to come, there's free beer, uh, courtesy of Stock Twits. So let's let's really go there. George, you're going, right? Yeah, I'll be the see there, Tommy. All right, thanks for that time. We do Michael Green and then uh, Jeff. Hey, Michael, what's up? Michael, you want to meet yourself? I do want to unmute myself. Thank you, George. I apologize for that. Hey, I just said uh, I just sent three aces, a couple of charts. I believe he posted them um, that perhaps will restore an element of your faith in humanity. Um, the primary point that I would make is, is that a lot of the data we're getting on flows into Kathy Woods uh, ignores the underlying dynamic of the introduction of an inverse product and the create to lend dynamic. So on my calculations, she actually is not taken in that money. There has been a small bounce, but that has been eviscerated in just the past couple of days. Um, and what you actually saw in this dramatic underperformance was the start of outflows again. Michael, I hope you're right. I fear you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. Because if I look at the TQQ thing, yep, I haven't looked at it for a week or so, but last I looked a week or two ago, that had taken, I don't know, $6 billion year to date or something like that. Didn't see any outflows there. It was money so in. The, thing, the thing you always got to be careful with, right, is, is you've got to combine short interest and the flows. If there's a net order imbalance to short, the specialist will actually create shares to lend shares. So you just got to be really careful in the interpretation of this stuff. I, my, my, I totally get what you're saying. So my question to you is, it's beyond my pay grade. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it back on you and say, can you, it's not can I prove they're sending money in. I'm going to put it back on you and say, can you prove to me, given how difficult it is to new, it's a nuanced question, can you, can you comfortably state that money has actually been going out of Kathy Woods and the queues? What I would very confidently say is, is that, um, Tommy is correct, right? That there are both, there's money going in and there's money going out. The retail traders have not yet started to abandon ship, which is of course exactly the warning sign that you're talking about. You are seeing inflows coming in, coming in from places like Nico Securities where she has distribution dynamics. And again, a lot of that, you've heard me talk about this before, a lot of that is things like structured products because the high volatility of Tesla makes it super attractive in option structures. So, there, and, and it's a known name, right? The, as bad as the research may be in, in the United States, I assure you it's even worse amongst Asian retail investors who are investing in structured products and see Elon Musk as representative of, you know, American 
uh, ingenuity and talent and capability. They have even less ability to dissect his misrepresentations from, from the American public. So the, the, the quick answer is professional traders are continuing to add to shorts that raises risk of a bear market rally. But at the same time, the, the net shares that are outstanding are falling. Okay, well, that's pretty consistent with, I think, what we're saying at the outset, which is retail retail bought a shit ton of this stuff and they haven't sold anything. And it's, you know, if anything... I, 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 I think that's absolutely correct. You know that, I yeah, do that, think that it, that it matters. You have to disaggregate it in terms of... Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah for, for sure. But it's it's the dumb money, the retail guys who are left holding the bag. I mean... I, I, this is exactly why you hear me complain about this stuff. And, and yeah. again, I just want to emphasize, though, that sure. the odds are very low that you're going to see that change in terms of individual selling until the net dynamics effectively tied to employment shift against them. Right. Because what, what you're seeing is it, when somebody buys a Vanguard total market fund, which is why or the inclusion in the S&P 500, which is what propelled Tesla to the extraordinary heights in the fourth quarter of 2020. There's nobody who's being, quote unquote, dumb or thoughtful or anything else. Right. They're just doing what their HR manager set them up to do. No argument there. So, yes, it's dumb, but it's not. You know, I, I would argue that there's less crazy retail participation than you think on, on the Kathy Wood front, absolute inanity, right? Like that's just silliness, but Tesla itself has some very interesting dynamics associated with it that explain a lot of the behavior anyway. And, and with all that said, I agree with what everybody else is saying. Kantrowitz, especially in terms of the dynamic, if you want to talk about a similarity, right? This is, this is functionally identical to what happened in the dot com cycle where stocks cratered, money losing stocks, unprofitable stocks, et cetera, as it became clear that the money was no longer coming in. And then the recession hit after the rally from 9-11. If you guys remember, like that was chaos. The summer of 2002 was brutal. Nothing worked. That, that to me, feels like the next step in this market. That's, what, that, that's what we've all been saying. Can yeah. I just tell you what it's like to see a meltdown in a market? I was in Japan in 1989. I mean, the people were just like, they couldn't believe that the stock market went down so much. Motorhead, coming soon to a theater near you. Michael, keep going, my friend. What's up? The, the only other thing I just wanted to add is I just want to make sure that people, you know, when we talk about fundamentals on Tesla, for example, like I heard the number that only 1.4 million vehicles are sold over 40,000. That's a hyper dated data point. Um, if I look at new car sales in the past year, in the United States alone, roughly 6 million vehicles were sold over $40,000. So like we just at 45 was actually the median. So just it, this is one of the challenges for Tesla Q is that, it, you know, the facts on the ground are often slightly different than are represented. Just want to make sure that people, you know, do their best job of putting their best foot forward on this stuff. Michael, I just want to tell you that um, uh, all the car makers in the world are making money on their used car sales because, you know, Toyota, VW, all these big car makers have captive finance, you know, businesses. Yep. And they're, they're, they're like totally making out like bandits. And so, like, the funny thing is that Tesla sells more volume every year since the chip crisis started in 2020. And yet, um, the the ICE legacy makers make 
more money than Tesla. Again, I'm not arguing with any of that, and I'm not defending Tesla. I just think it's really important that when we present fact-based arguments, that the data matches what we're actually saying, because it destroys our credibility when we say things like, there's only 1.6 million vehicles over 40,000, because that's just not true. Oh, it is. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. It is. The median price for a new car in 2021 was $45,000. Yeah, and the starting price for a Tesla is 62000 But that's not the same statement. You said 1.6 million vehicles in total globally were sold above 40000 That is not correct. No, it is. We sold 12.3 million vehicles in the United States last year. The median was 45000 That tells you at minimum there were 6 million vehicles sold over 45000 I'll, se- I'll send you the data. Look, I mean, I'm an auto analyst for like 25 years. I, I'm not disputing that. Hey, Ma- Michael, Michael, are those passenger vehicles? Or does that those are passenger vehicles. Mack trucks yes. and all that stuff. Those yes. are passenger vehicles. Okay. Of course it's passenger. Could I suggest we follow up? We're, we're, getting, we're, we're getting getting into the Tesla discussion, which... Uh, yep. No, I, and, and, and again, my point was actually just to highlight the dynamics that the flow is not as simple as it appears. Yes, the shares outstanding and ARC have risen. That's a combination of shorting and the introduction and the introduction of products like Sark, which needs to source shares in order to be short. Oh, fair enough. All right. All right. Um, I'm going to step down. Thanks, Michael. All right. So let's hold it right here for a second. Um, reset the room because it's an unbelievable room. Three aces, Tommy Thornton, Michael Kantrowitz, Motorhead. Um, just one Mark Newman. What an incredible room. So we're going to go with Jeff Carbaz and them. Following Jeff, um, we've got London calling. We have Michael Hal joining us. Good to hear from Michael as well. So we're going to do Jeff Garbaz and then Michael Hal. Jeff, Jeff, good to see you. What's up, my friend? Hey, George. How are you? Good. What's up, man? Okay. So first, when I was listening to all this stuff, I took the song Playing With Fire and I modified it in a way in which I thought you would like. So I think we need a little humor after that last little thing. So mind if I give it to you real quick? Go for it. Well, you've got your Teladoc and you've got your Coinbase and the chauffeur drives your Tesla. You let everybody know, but don't play with Noble because you're playing with fire. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> I, well I, do, I, I, do, I do have a second stanza, but I will save that to uh, publish onto uh, to Twitter after I create the third and final awesome. stanza of awesome. playing with, of playing awesome. with fire. So, okay, so, so, so Jeff, what, what, what's on your mind, my friend? So first thing is we got to short interest um, yesterday, and I want to talk about it as it relates to um, Stan's comments. But the first thing is the most important thing for people to remember is that the, the most important technical indicator is bias. And bias simply tells you whether you want to be long or short. And we, we have a particular way of doing it on a monthly, weekly, daily basis. The monthly is really important right now because all the sectors have been ne- negative for m- multiple months. And the longer we go, the more it starts looking more like a 2000 to 2002, an 07 to 09 event, rather than a... 2011 or 2015 event. 
So I think that's a really important fact for everyone to understand. And to, to like the point that Stan was making about not being short right now is you can have these, these rallies that, you know, quote unquote, rip your face off. I think that's a direct comment of, of what he said. And George, you can, you can relate this back to our comment before you went away. We're talking about this idea out of Erlanger, which is tracking the type fours, which are weak stocks that no one is short. And they, and they started going down week after week after week. And um, we got to week six. And since 2009, there had never been another period where we'd gone more than six weeks in a row before the uh, the type fours then had a rebound week. And um, you, you scolded me a little bit, rightly so, that, you, you know, um, you're basically data mining. And I said, yeah, I am data mining. And then the following week, we got the rally. But here's here's the kicker. It was only a three-day rally. And the first rally we got this year was from March 14th through March 29th. It was a couple-week rally. It looked a lot better than what we got um, two full weeks ago. Um, and it only lasted three days. And yet, that was the week into Memorial Day weekend. The S&P gained 6.84%. But it was really, a lot of it happened that Friday alone. And then last week... Was it was a good week for long short? The short squeezes were up like four basis points, and the uh, long squeezes made one point eight four. This week, everything went down. It was like a flat week, which you know when you get a really bad week like this week, just alone on Thursday and Friday, we lost five point two one percent on the uh, on the S and P. So we're in a mode where everything is kind of falling, and. Um, What's interesting to me is the intraday kind of matters here a little bit. And I equate the, uh, I kind of compare this to uh, Top Gun, where they keep, get told not to go below the hard deck. Well, we had nine trading days in a row coming into uh, the latter part of this week where we had been trading basically 4.15 to 4.10 on SPY. And then we broke the hard deck at 4.10 and bye-bye. And now we're in the three 390s, or actually we, uh, below 390, 389. So I think that's a key thing for people to remember. Um, back to short interest, we now have nine sectors from six out of 24 that have short intensity above 50%. So the short interest is rising, um, and that's probably a good reason why, you know, Stan's like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the sidelines for a while. And as Tom said. You know, let let the market kind of rally and then re-put on shorts after that thing, you know, takes care of itself. So that that to me is like ver be very aware of um, energy. It's pretty amazing. I just put a chart up on uh, on Twitter. We're at 23 uh, percent of all energy names in a short squeeze now. So we had the run up. I mean, George, you remember when you started this, we talked about. The fact that people had started shorting energy in January and February. And then we got in April, we got a little bit of covering. Um, the overall short intensity for the sector went down to 37. Now we're back to 42. So we've gone up in like the last reporting period by five percentage. It's still the second lightest shorted sector because so much other stuff is being shorted. But it's still enough to matter because 23% of energy stocks being a short squeeze Exxon just, you know, went from one and change to two and change. It was a big absolute number. So it's an interesting comment that people are um, are playing with energy again on the uh, on, on the short side. Um, 
couple other key points out of the work right now. The flows in stock, we have a thing called the Erlanger volume um, swing indicator. And basically, we've been pretty much negative all year. We got back up to positive two weeks ago. So right after Memorial Day weekend, we got to a plus one. And now we're back down at a, at a, at a minus seven. And so it, it seems like to, to bring in another song, um, Pete Townsend, Crashing by Design. It seems like this is what the Fed is, is, is basically creating. And there's, there's four nice lyrics from that song. It says, nothing must pass this line. We can talk about interest rates unless it is well-defined. You just have to be resigned. You're crashing by design. So, George, I feel that that theme is a really big theme for where we are right now. We're, we're kind of crashing by design. And a lot of people, especially mainstream media, are very ignorant of it. Um, one thing in our weekly report that we put up is year-to-date stats. So, so far through the end of May, uh, I'm going to calculate it this weekend again because I'm curious after Thursday, Friday, only 21.83% of stocks were higher for the year. Here's a great stat. I always like to look at on the, on the positive and negative side, how many stocks are up more than 50, 25, 10, and same thing on the short side, down 50, down 25, down 10. So, so through the end of May, 197 stocks were up more than 50%, and there are 862 stocks down more than 50%. Now, this is out of the full stock legitimate universe, which is roughly 5,400 stocks, and up more than 25%, were 385 and down more than 25, 2,084. That, that is a really uh, telling statistic. And then the, just the overall up was 1,187. Overall down was 4,199. So, 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 so Jeff, Jeff, let me just interrupt you for one second. So I'm hearing, because you get in the weeds on this stuff, what I'm hearing from you is it just sounds really negative. And then my question to you is, the leading question, when you have a setup where something quote unquote should happen or the odds favor that it should happen and it doesn't happen, what does that tell you? Um, it goes back to like what, what Phil says, uh, pay attention to how um, stocks react as opposed to the news and how they react, which is what matters more is like how they're reacting. To so, stuff. so, so with respect, just the interest of integrity, he obviously was a paying client of Stan Weinstein. We invented that phrase. It's not the news, but the reaction to the news that counts. Exactly. Uh, okay. By the way, FI break in, break in. I think someone mentioned this before. As we're sitting here, it's not just that Bitcoin's down 2.7%, but Ethereum, someone mentioned an hour ago, now I finally looked at it, it's down like 8% right now. So you look at that chart. I mean, Ethereum's 1530 last. I mean, even an amateur chartist, I think, would say this is going to 400. Uh, Bitcoin, my longstanding target's eleven thousand. So, anyway, yeah. So, I mean, so, so, so Jeff, so out of all that, Jeff, out of all that, for for the eleven hundred people, and this is a massive, massive room, one of the best we've had in a long time. I just can't believe it. We have Anasa Haji, Michael Hal, Tom Thornton, yourself, Michael Kantrowitz, Michael Green, Newman, Three Aces. I mean, Mark Cahodes. I mean, show me another room. Show me another room that comes remotely close to being like this. So, Jeff, what is your advice for the average person in the room? Have a lot of cash. <laughs> as as un unfortunately, I think he's wrong on this. I mean, Ray Dalio, the idea that cash is trash, that's totally not 
correct. And um, individuals have can wait it out until this this gets over and done with. Hundred percent, hundred percent. What's what's most interesting in our work? There are only. And I'm just going to go look at it right now, but I believe it's two sectors that are positive. Basically, we we rank everything, so we have to do a full ranking system. But the only two sectors that are positive now are energy and, and utilities. And that's kind of it. And utilities are kind of waning a bit, but they're still kind of hanging there. Yep. Um, so the way the way we try and do it, and it's, it's still been hard because we have to do a list every week of our favorite longs and our favorite shorts, is uh, just to uh, try and be as, as defensive as possible on the long side, i.e. this last week there were, there were zero, um, you know, tech names there. And there haven't been right. tech names. And, and Jeff, Jeff, last question. I want to get Michael Howell in here. If one was going to be shorting, um, I know you're always a big proponent to go where the weakness is, you know, but you don't want to get caught in the squeeze. But so what sectors would you be looking to be short? I mean, I don't think fundamentally, you may say it's too much of a squeeze, but fundamentally, I think the consumer area looks great for shorting. It's just a fundamental. Call. Yeah, well, our, 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 I'll just tell you our short list. It wasn't very big. It's, it's eight names. So Simon Properties. So I like REITs. Um, we also had KKR Real Estate Finance Trust. Uh, which is KREF as a short. Uh, Walmart was a short, and that was, we put that on Monday, and then obviously the Target thing happened later in the week. Um, Bank of New York, Deutsche Bank, which totally fell apart this week. As a matter of fact, we made so much money in it this week that we we took it off on Friday a little earlier when the market was uh, rallying. I think we were up like, I think it was like 14% on it. Um, Church and Dwight, you know, standard, slow, but it's just it's just struggling. All right, um, but, but Jeff, Jeff, just with sectors, yeah. Is, 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 what, 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 is it consumer? Is it REITs? What, where, what are you saying sector wise? Where you be looking for shorts? REITs, financials, consumer, and then uh, healthcare equipment. Awesome, that's awesome. Jeff, please stay on stage. I'm sure there'll be more questions for you. Okay. Um, so I'd like to go now to oh my god, what an incredible room! So Michael Howell and then Dr. Nassau Haji. Michael, my friend, good to talk to you. It's been been a while. It's um, been a while, George. Hi. Yeah, you're 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 unfortunately, unfortunately, you've been right as rain. Uh, and again, I I maybe you start to get sick when you when you hear my gratuitous praise of you and my <laughs> tweet, but I can't think of anyone who's gotten the big picture more right than yourself. And so, much deserved uh, shout out to you, my friend. Um, maybe give a date to the folks in the room. What are you thinking? If they're paying attention to your, to your, to your Twitter account, it looks like the song remains the same, but just give us kind of an update to what, what, what about your thought process right now? Sure, George. Well, thank, thanks for the uh, compliment. Um, uh, I'm also going to go back and pick up a comment you said, uh, where this market looks a lot like Japan and you know, you knew a lot about Japan. And I remember back in, I think it was the early nineties going into your office in Fidelity and you had on the wall a poster, and that poster was called, if I remember, from Ptolemy to Copernicus, issued by Nomura, correct? How? Holy shit. I have that. I have that in my study right here. Yep. I'll take a picture of it and tweet it out. Good. Right. You want to do good that? Good for you, Michael. That, good for you. That was denial at the time by people that you would have thought were serious, like Nomura. They, could just, they just denied the market bubble. And we've got another one. I remember what happened in Japan in uh, 1989, Mieno, who was then the uh, equivalent of Jay Powell in for the Bank of Japan, made a statement and said, we're going to kill service sector inflation. And I was at Salomon Brothers then, and we were scrambling around trying to find out what service sector inflation was in Japan. 
because on paper, Japan didn't have any inflation. But Mieno started to squeeze, and boy, that was a serious squeeze. And no one's really been mentioning the Fed uh, in the last hour, as far as I can recall, uh, on this chat. But the Fed means business. And we put a little diagram pretty frequently on our Twitter feed, which is at cross-border cap. And that tracks not the Fed balance sheet, but the effective Fed balance sheet. In other words, how much liquidity the Federal Reserve sticks into U.S. money markets. And the S&P has tracked that absolutely one for one with about a four week lag. And if you look at what the Federal Reserve intends to do, which is to take two trillion out of the balance sheet, uh, the market's got three thousand two hundred written all over it. If the Federal Reserve makes a mistake and allows reverse repos to pick up, which is quite likely because this is a fairly wonkish fact. But if they start pushing rates up, uh, money market funds will put their rates up faster than banks. Uh, there'll be an exodus of money into the money market funds out of bank deposits. Uh, reverse repos will spike and you might get the reverse repo, which is currently two point four trillion uh, up well in excess of three trillion. So in other words, that's money out of the market. So in actual fact, the Fed may want to take two trillion up. They end up taking three trillion out They're, That way, the S&P goes to twenty five hundred. Uh, so that's how bad it's going to get. Uh, you know, we, we've only just started this thing. And I think the best place is cash. The only thing I'd say is that we're nibbling at the long end of the Treasury market. It may be a tad too early, but you just don't know. And there are two things that make us, you know, maybe a little bit nervous on that bond call. Uh, and they're both international. One is what's going on in Japan and the weakness in the yen. Uh, at some stage, the Japanese are going to say, you know, enough pain here. And they're going to start uh, uh, changing their yield curve control and allow the JGB bond to trade up to maybe 50 bips. And that's going to put an earthquake under the market. And the other thing is just take a look at the German Bund. Uh, that looks to me like it's breaking out. Uh, yields are going up. And that's a really worrying sign. The Europeans have just lost control of, of pretty much everything. And uh, I wouldn't want to be in the European markets at all. That's where you've got some really big overweights. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. may be overweight risk assets, but my, believe me, Europe is too. Michael, that, that's brilliant. Maybe you could just flush that out a little bit more. Um, I'd like you to speak, please, because you always speak to how volatility, you know, starts in whatever it is in fixed income and goes to currencies the other way around and finally to equities, but how that all works through. And then specifically in that context, you rightly mentioned the, the, the bun yield uh, starting to move. But what do you make of the fact that the yen is trading like, you know, the freaking Argentine peso or Turkish lira? And what are the implications of that for global markets? Well, let me let me go to the yen first, because, you know, in, in all the years I've been in markets, which have been a lot, um, I've never seen a currency weaken as rapidly, a big currency as rapidly as that. If you look at 40 trading days from early March to early May of this year, the yen devalued at an annualized rate of 83 percent. Right. Markets don't do that. Only governments. Stop, do that. stop, stop, stop. Eighty three percent. Hold on. Hold Annual on. at an annualized. 83% rate, and this is the world's biggest creditor nation. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah, okay, absolutely. Can, can you, Markets don't do that. Governments do. Mic drop. That is, okay, keep going, keep going. So this looks like it's an attempt to do something. Now, it's either the Japanese trying to steal a march on the U.S. I, I doubt that because I think there's been no uh, complaint from the U.S. Treasury about what the Japanese have been doing, or it's an attempt to shake the tree in China. And, you know, I think it was Winston Churchill once said that if you're going to kick somebody, kick them when they're down. 
So maybe the best time to kick China is when China is reeling after this COVID-19 uh, problem. And the doing, I would suspect, is if you get the yen weakening at this rate and the one Korean won has weakened similarly, they're putting huge, huge pressure on the Chinese yuan. It's trying to weaken through seven. The Chinese are holding it back. But in trying to hold it back, they're squeezing their money market significantly. Now, normally, April and May are big months for the People's Bank of China to stick liquidity in their market. They've actually taken out somewhere close to 800 billion yuan, which is about just over 100, 110 billion dollars out of their markets in the last two months, which are normally uh, big liquidity inflow months. So this is what they're doing. And that is going to have a negative effect on the economy. So what you're looking at is, uh, you know, global recession. And to pick up, you know, I think it was your point earlier on, uh, if the Fed is crucifying the P.E. in the market, uh, it's the Chinese that are going to kill the E uh, because they are the they are the elephant in the room when it comes to industry. So that's that's what I would say on that on the, uh, you know, on the on the European situation on the Bund. Uh, I think the I think the problem you've got uh, in Europe is that there's been <laughs> denial for a long time. Uh, the Italians take on an awful lot of debt. And the Germans will never admit liability for that debt. And conveniently, the COVID-19 crisis allowed the ECB to paper over the cracks with lots of liquidity. Now that tide of liquidity is, wants to go out because of inflation, uh, you're going to get a lot of tensions in the European bond markets, which is already starting. Look at what happened to Italy this week. Um, the issue that the market's saying is that they don't believe that the ECB is going to be tough enough on the inflation fight. And that maybe is why the Bund is selling off. But if you've got the JGB potentially going up and the Bund going up, the U.S. Treasury uh, 10 year is also going to come under some upward pressure. So although I'd be nibbling at that market on the basis of recession, uh, that's in the background in my mind that that may go wrong. Michael, can I ask you a slightly different question? Um, so I have a lot of time for uh, the folks at GavCal. Louis Gav, uh, quite a good thinker. I don't know how well you know him, but um They've been on this kick in the last few weeks, and I mentioned it earlier in the room. I don't know if you were in the room at the time. And there's a very good um, uh, podcast I suggest you – I'll send it to you. And, and he, he was speaking about deglobalization of uh, financial flows, deglobalization of trade, of, 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 we know, but de deglobalization of capital flows and the attendant consequences um, – for interest rates in the United States and Europe, that if, 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 if you've basically dating this all from what's happened in Ukraine and Russia and the U.S., you know, denying Russia access to their billions and the idea that uh, economic actors who had money, say, in, 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 in China or emerging markets who heretofore would have kept them in the U.S. banking system and they'd find their way into treasuries or real estate or U.S. equities, then all of a sudden that's not such a no-brainer trade anymore. And the argument basically was that those flows uh, will um, the, 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 those fl flows will go elsewhere. So, ceteris paribus, um, that would mean higher um, real rates in the U.S. Um, I don't have to know you are with the theory. If you think it's bollocks, or I think it's the way you folks say it. Yeah, I, I, or, or, I, don't, or, I don't buy into that. To be you, okay, could, could, could you think, please explain think, why why yeah. why, why you don't I buy into the, that? I think the I think the reason will be is go go read uh, Janet Yellen's speech. Uh, I think, early April to the Atlantic Council uh, and then listen after that to Blinken's speech about China. And what you're getting is the Yellen speech was called friendshoring. 
Uh, I don't know if you've come across it, but what that basically means is you're either a friend of the US or you're a foe of the US. And that is now becoming stark. And one of the things that people have been talking about recently, uh, you may have heard this, Bretton Woods 3, Bretton Woods 2 or whatever. Actually, we've never left Bretton Woods 1. Bretton Woods 1 was all about the dominance of the dollar. Uh, it was about uh, creating a system whereby you could move trade and capital around the world. And the dollar was the, was the center of that. Uh, we had um, the IMF and the World Bank policing that system. Um, U.S. credit became dominant. And but as an aside, we had fixed exchange rates. The only thing that has changed in that whole equation has been fixed exchange rates. And actually, you can say that fixed exchange rates are sticky, not necessarily floating right now. So that's the only change. We're still with Bretton Woods 1. The dollar is dominant, and the Bretton Woods one was all about circulating capital and trade in the free world. Remember that the Soviet bloc and China were outside of that. That's the world we've come back to, and this is the world that you're now looking at. And so I think that this is, uh, you know, this is the, the new world. It's all about friend-shoring. Who's your friend? That's, those are the countries that will get dollar access to dollars. And the Fed, the reason that we're you know, focusing on the Fed so much is that in the last 10 years, the Federal Reserve has increased its power enormously. The Fed was sort of almost uh, off the map in, uh, in the GFC. They lost control of the U.S. credit system. Now they've muscled back with lots and lots of different programs like uh, foreign exchange swaps, like the standing repo facility, uh, regulation of banks, all this sort of stuff. The Fed's about two to three times more powerful than it was in, uh, in 2008. And the, what that means is that you've got to start listening to what the U.S. is doing. And if the Fed is trying to create a squeeze in the global economy, which may be what their, their agenda is, that will clearly help to get U.S. inflation down as well. You want access to dollars. And the Fed is the tap which turns that, that dollar tap on. Uh, hey, hey, Michael, George, you mind if I ask a quick question? Go for sure. it. Or you want to, you want to keep, keep going? So, hey, no, Michael, no, no, just no, go, it. Go, go for it. Yeah. By the way, Dr. Anas had to step out for a TV interview. He'll be back in 10 minutes. Um, Michael, I'm just curious now. If the Fed and the U.S. is tightening, but we don't see a commensurate level of behavior internationally, um, is it possible that the dollar can just continue on this bullish run that it's on because of the excess liquidity in foreign currencies coming into dollars that are shrinking? If that's a real question, thank you. Yeah, it's a real question. The real answer is yes, and that's what's going to happen. I think the, the policy of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury is very simple, and that is to get the balance sheet down and the US dollar up. And that's what's basically going on. And the more the dollar goes up, the more you get a squeeze uh, in the international economy, and the more um, you just, the, these foreign governments uh, have to go back to the Federal Reserve to get more dollars. Um, one of the things that changed under the Trump regime because of various tax changes is the euro dollar markets have become a lot less important than they were. Uh, it's really the Fed now that supplies a lot of that offshore liquidity. And if you need offshore liquidity, and you know, just remember in the last 10 years, there's been a huge amount of borrowing in dollars and a lot of FX swap business done. Um, and the Federal Reserve will bail out the global system if it decides you're a friend of America. And that's why I think this friendshoring speech by Yellen is so important. So we need to get long cross currency based swaps, right? <laughs> right. So excellent. 
So, Michael, um, so you're, you're basically advocating people just be defensive, hold cash and hold that cash in dollars. Is that your message? Yeah, I think I think dollar cash is the best uh, the best thing to look at. Uh, you know, I, I, I buy into your argument for oil. I think there's a structural uh, efficiency in oil, um, particularly in Europe. Um, and, you know, I, as I say, I'm nibbling in the long end of the Treasury market, but uh, I'm, I fully accept I may be too early on that one. And not that it really matters because we're more, so I don't want to get into a debate about recession, no recession, but we were, at the end of the day, we're interested in asset prices. But in the full what it's worth category, um, how has your, your probability assessment of recession in the U.S. changed? I mean, you spoke about different levels of the market, whether it's just a slowdown, recession or banking crisis, and the market will go down certain you know amounts, whatever it was, 20, 30, yeah. 40%, whatever. So, where, are you, where, where, where are you in terms of your thoughts about recession versus slowdown and, and what does oh. it mean for markets oh i, I think I, I think pretty clear i mean look asia is in recession now um europe is probably just entering and i think the u.s is about a month behind so i'd say that yeah, the recession is on the horizon just look at the you know the the earnings statements that came out of uh, target walmart and abercrombie everybody's saying inventory levels this soaring <laughs> i mean this has got recession written all over it Right. So slowing. So do you think ultimately think inflation ultimately comes down only because we have a recession? I mean, this is, sounds like a horrible cocktail for asset price. You've got a slowing economy, if not recession. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think what I find most alarming is the point you were making about, you know, and we were speaking about this earlier, perhaps before you got in the room. You know, don't fight the Fed. The Fed wants the market to go down. Yeah, um, it, it, it is. I mean, the, the point is that if you look at the people are asking the wrong question about inflation, uh, they're asking it this month, has inflation peaked? That's not that's not the right question. The question is, when does it come down to a tolerable level? And that's going to be months and months and months away. The level of persistence in inflation numbers uh, in the US is back to where it was in the late 1970s when Volcker was appointed. Uh, so it's going to take a big, big squeeze. And the, the Fed is intent on front loading that squeeze. So the next six months, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, stuff going to hit the fan. Wow. Just when uh, <laughs> Michael, just, just just stay there. I'm sure we're going to have some questions. Um, I'd like to go to Brian. Uh, Brian, do you have a question? Brian, please unmute yourself, Brian. Yeah. Hey, George. Um, I just actually wanted to make a quick comment about uh, something that was made earlier about retail not selling yet. So it's actually funny at work. My um, colleagues, I'm an engineer, and they constantly are looking at the market and commenting on it and saying like, oh, the market's down, time to buy. Well, it was funny because yesterday, actually, one of my colleagues changed and was like, oh, shoot, I lost $10,000. So, yeah, it's starting to get a different uh, vibe out there, and they could be capitulating soon, I think. Thanks, Ed. Much appreciated. Um, okay, let's go to... Uh... To Jeffrey and then Brian. Jeffrey, you have a question? Hey, George. Hello? George, can I just jump in? I got to run. Uh, can I just make a couple of comments real quick? Uh, yeah, you don't mind? Only, if, only if they're relevant to what we're speaking. If it's something irrelevant, no. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, definitely. In other words, no, I, in other just words, I, don't, to... I, I don't want the thread of this conversation changing. So go ahead. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, uh, I would say the the fee, uh, the financial system is highly manipulated i just posted one thing up in the nest uh if uh, if you just look at it you know uh, the m2 money supply increased 40% in 2 years from covid so this shows that you know they've printed a lot of uh dollars recently and that's where we see 
um, the the financial system. I think you know the Fed is in a rock and a hard place right now. Our debt to GDP is 130 percent, so they have to inflate that debt away. Uh, going forward, you know, with the high inflation print 8.6 percent, I think uh, the next two June and July. Uh, Interest rate hikes, I think they're locked in at 50 basis points because that's the most pressing issue is they need to get inflation under control. But I think the ceiling for how high the Fed can go is about 2%. So they don't have that much room to go because of our debt. It's so high. So I think the the currency printing will continue uh, down the road. So I think uh, as soon as there's some uh, good inflation prints uh, going forward, they're going to back off. And then continue. Uh, and I think you see this. Uh, U.S. is 130. And I think the world is at 250% uh, uh, debt to GDP. So this is where uh, I see going forward. They're going to continue to manipulate the markets. And they have to print. And yeah, everything is overvalued. Yeah, Like you say, George, that this is a market is a everything bubble. And I, and I can see that from all the currency printing. All right, they, uh, did, did you, do you have a question? Otherwise, I want to move along. Do you have a question? Mm. No, 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 I just wanted to comment on that. What you thought about uh, that they have they have to continue printing? Would you agree with that, George? Given the debt to GDP? No, I don't agree with that. Um, I don't because two is just their anchor. Yeah, two is not. Two's not yeah. locked in. They can raise yeah. five. And, they and whatever, I, listen, they, are, they are they are not in control of anything. They're behind the curve. They're following the market. They're not. They're not. They have no plan. They're reactive. I think people have too much confidence in them and they think they know what they're doing. So, um, yeah. so no, I, I, Barclays, I, 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 I is re, um, trying to price in a 75 basis point for June. And yeah. someone else was saying that he should roll forward the 50 basis points from July and raise by a hundred next week. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they left the door open for them to. Yeah. to Amy, 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 you have a lot of feedback in the background. If you could just, you know, Hold it until you're in a quieter place. Appreciate it. Um, we got a ton of people here who want to speak. Um, if you, if I don't know you, um, please, I've sent you a direct message. I want to know your question because otherwise, it was such a big room. This room is going to go off the rails. I want to stay on point. So if I've not recognized you, um, you need to answer. You need to respond to my question as to what you, to what you want, what, uh, what, what, what you wish to speak about. Again, I, I'm doing this for the benefit of the room. Otherwise, these rooms get totally screwed up. Um, I'd like to uh, now turn to Gilberto, my good friend Gilberto. He's always insightful. He's got something interesting to say. So, Gilberto, a long time. Have you been? What's, what's on your mind, Gilberto? Hi, George. Hi, everyone. I was wondering if any one of the speakers has anything to say about the price action in Chinese tech companies last week. Baba went to 125, KeyWeb rise it and we saw a relative strength toward that sector and i want to know if there's any update in the chinese macroeconomic environment that i am not aware of or if this is just relative strength versus us cpi and the fact that in september we have that big political event in china the confirmation of xi jinping Anything anyone has to say about that? I, I personally, um, let's put it this way. You can't get them all right. I mean, I've just been ignoring Chinese um, equities, period. Missed the whole down. Now they're bouncing. There have been a lot of false starts. 
they may still go up. It's just, I'm just not in a, in a world where I'm negative on risk pretty much across the board. Yes. These things are oversold and yes, they can go up and yes, people are putting on a long Chinese tech trade versus short NASDAQ or Kathy Wood. Yes, 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 yes. But do I want to buy those in an absolute sense for my own account? No. Um, but I'm going to now turn to Tommy Thornton, who I'm sure has a better opinion about it than I do. So, Tommy, thoughts? Well, there's a couple things that are happening. Um, and one is partly uh, you've had some reopening. And I know that Shanghai just did another lockdown of some sort. But things are starting to open up uh, for the most part in China. And I think that's partly why um, some of these stocks um, caught a bid. I also think that um, the, the Chinese government has been at war with the tech companies and they've sufficiently brought them to their knees and now is starting to lighten up some of the rhetoric. And I, I think the uh, Ant Financial IPO is going to happen. And I think that's going to, you know, the several reports where it's going to happen and then the government squashed it a little bit. But I think for the most part, it will happen. And maybe this year, I mean, maybe next year, but this is going to be the largest IPO ever. Uh, it's going to be absolutely monstrous. I, and, and the other thing is everybody's talked about how uninvestable these companies and the, the whole sector has been. I think that's starting to change a bit. And it's not necessarily the uh, low risk type environment, but some of these companies like Baba are, are fairly cheap. And if you're looking for a cheap upside potential play, I think that is possible. Now, there's another problem that could happen is if um, everybody's favorite Japanese uh, company, SoftBank, uh, really has to take down um, exposure, mark things down and then have to sell, sell some Alibaba because of all the leverage that's a potential but for the most part it's the the thaw it's starting to thaw out a little bit in the in the group in the it, and people are looking for different places outside of the u.s and places that have been beat down with some upside catalyst and i think the, the reopening story in china is one and if the government stops the war on tech that's another so they're it's the, the game, you know, approval games, uh, approval of games is, is happening as well. And that, that hasn't happened for, um, I think, over a year. So this there's some improvements there. So that's all I've got on, on that. And um, Tom, Thomas, if we're, if we're all sort of somewhat, we are all bearish, isn't this also just the sort of classic bear market rally? I mean, for all of the reasons you say, the supply chain disruption... I mean, the point about inventories that was made earlier is spot on. Everybody is desperately trying to um, wind down their forecasts and their commitments, cancelling POs, especially in the consumer electronics industry. I sort of see this as goodwill factor, markets, you know, the, the uh, manufacturing open up, the lockdown sort of being eased. Um, you're right, there are some restrictions in Shanghai. As this filters into consumer sentiment, cost of living crisis, all of those inventories that globally retailers are holding on to, you know, I'm, I'm seeing 30% across the board, people trying to cancel purchase orders, reduce their forecast because they're carrying too much inventory. 
And when that catches up, then there's another leg down for the Chinese market because then demand will significantly drop. And the last two years, China has been ramping up demand, especially on the electronics side. You know, if you look at um, semiconductor, maybe not at, at, at the high tech end, so the, the sub 12 nanometer second end, but, you know, they brought on 20% more um, uh, processor manufacturing fab capacity from 18 nanometers up in the last in the last 18 months, two years. So I, I sort of see this as, as like a, a bear market rally. And by the end of the year, you'll see all economies and that will impact China because that, as George has said, is where, you know, most of the world's goods are still manufactured. I mean, obviously you've got Philippines, you've got India coming on, but if consumer demand has dropped, if they can't afford these products, then that's a massive yeah. Well, I, I don't doubt that, that this is a bear market rally. I just think that people are looking for spaces yeah. that have some potential yeah. catalyst for a little upside. That's it. All right. All right. All right. I'm, I'm stopping this line of discussion because we all are in agreement on this bear market rally. That's it. These are trading sardines, not eating sardines. I want to keep this moving because we've got a lot of people. We've got a huge stage here. It's been a great room. I just want to keep the pace up. Uh, Chris, uh, Master John has been waiting patiently. Chris, we're going to go to you. And then we're going to go to Shrub. Chris, what's up? Hey, um, I intended this for a question for Michael Howell, but I think he's gone. So I, it's a question on the bond market. Maybe someone else can take it. Um, my question is, um, part A is, is there a risk in the sum, like in a one or two year time horizon that um, the Fed would have to reverse specifically because there would be a sovereign debt crisis without them reversing and part B would be um, could they, if that were the case, would they just uh, like step in to buy the very long end of the curve so that um, selling off the like two to five year um, bonds would um, would hurt corporate refinancing and, and bring down the economy in the way they want while still funding the government? That's an interesting question, but honestly, I, I, I'd rather not go there because right. I have an opinion. I have an opinion about that, but I don't want to go there because that's really, I think, taking us. It's a great question. I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to ask it before Michael was in the room. So no disrespect intended, but that's going to kind of hijack the direction of this room. I really don't want to go there. I don't think it's right. right now. So thank you for the question. Please, in another room Thanks. when he's back, please ask it. Hey, Shrub, good to see you, my friend. Hey, buddy, uh, how are you? Hey, good, Shrub, <laughs> Shrub. Speak flows to me, baby. Speak flows. Let's talk flows. Let's talk flows. So in case you're wondering why the market sold off 3.5% on Friday while everyone is bearish and everyone is uninvested, the answer is because everyone is bearish, but everyone is still invested. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Trump, you crack me up, dude. The thing is, you, every week, you can't make this stuff up, Trump. You, Trump, Trump, I'm just going to sit back and relax. You have that, Trump. So that's why I put this meme that I did last week, and actually I made money out of this meme. It's like, so basically, every Wall Street strategist, smart guy, options guy was saying, oh, you know what? You got to be bullish because there's a big option expiring next week. So I was sitting back and thinking, okay, so you're telling me I should ignore the central bank rate rise. You should, I should ignore the CPI. I should... <laughs> I should ignore the recession. I should ignore, ignore targets earnings. 
but I should be bullish because of an option expiring next bro, week. Bro, 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 <laughs> Did you hear Kramer, bro? Hey, bro, what am I talking? Hey, bro, bro. <laughs> but anyway, I think people just look for a narrative to put mo- to burn money. I think the banks are just trying to build narratives to to burn money. So I'm predicting the next week you will see another silly narrative that the market will go bearish into the Fed expecting 75 bips then the fed will do 50 bips the market is going to say that it's a dovish rate rise of 50 bips they're going to ramp it up and then it's going to puke again <laughs> hey shrub question yeah for you. how you doing my bro i'm good brother how are you <laughs> i'm doing great thanks <laughs> uh, quick question for you in a rising dollar environment where commodities should be under pressure we obviously have this, you know, the supply demand imbalance in the oil patch. Now, I'm just curious, um, what if I'm looking at oil stocks here that are, you know, hemorrhaging cash, am I to value them as growth stocks uh, or am I to value them as value stocks? Could you talk a little bit about that, please? I think you. you I think you evaluate them as stocks that are going to save you from a stagflationary environment like they did in the 70s. And that's exactly why Buffett is buying them today. So they are, in an energy crisis, you want to belong the energy. In a stagflationary environment, you want to belong the energy. So that's why now I'm, I'm more than 50% cash. But my remaining exposure remains energy. And actually, I have a new position that I can discuss later. I went back to fertilizers. So, you know, not to be only bearish, I actually found that this week had a good opportunity on the long side on fertilizers, which, to be honest, I mean, there's a byproduct of, uh, energy in some way because you need energy to uh, to make uh, uh, nitrates, for example. So uh, energy is still tight. We've look, there's smarter people on this panel, and they you've gone through it extensively, but it's still tight. Uh, the companies are still paying very high dividends. Uh, they make high free cash flow. So again, you know, keep it simple. There's companies that make, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's. Uh, <laughs> There's some guys that can make more than 10% uh, payouts this year. Uh, some fertilizer companies make 20, 30% uh, free cash flow yields. Um, that, that's going to stay high. So I want to be protecting my, you know, what little exposure I have in the markets by having companies that actually make money. Um, I, I think it's as simple as that. There's nothing more, di- nothing complicated. Uh, but I, I want to talk about the flow data as well, uh, now that I'm here, George, if you don't mind. So just on the flow data, what has been extremely shocking was that uh, end of May, the, the week of the end of the last week of uh, May, we had 20 billion of inflows in equities, 20 billion in. And then last week, so this week, we had 12 billion in equities of which 14.4 billion were in US large caps. So again, you know, I, I, wanna, I wanna continue how I started the discussion. If you're wondering why the market is getting killed on bad prints, it's because people are long. It's very simple. I think I, you, know, I, you said the comment about uh, Stan Weinstein. It's like, you know, see how the market reacts on news. So you had bad news and the market down three and a half percent. What does that tell you? It tells you that people are not invested? No, it tells you that people are invested. <laughs> yeah, so, shrub, shrub. You know, you know. You've been at this for a long time, and just listening to you talk, it's when, when I can stop laughing on a serious note. 
I listen to you talk and you and I have a similar view of the world. I watch the markets. Don't you feel like we're living in a parallel universe? It's this sort of George Orwell type of world where the bullshit you're hearing, the narratives from the street and CNBC and FinTwit, it just it just doesn't match. Or as, as Three Aces would say, Three Aces, how do you say it? The curtains don't match the drapes or whatever your line of say is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, shrub, shrub, something's really wrong here. Like, like, don't you want to just bang your head against the wall, Shrub? No, I, I agree. I, I think it feels like we're living on a parallel universe. Like, I read some comments. I'm like, are, are we looking at the same data? Are we looking at the same numbers? You know, why are people trying to buy the dip on mega tech, for example? You know, we have CPI of 9%. It's so obvious what's happening with the Fed that the Fed can't do anything right now. The Fed is trapped. We know that they want to print, but they can't print, right? So it's just a very simple thing. Don't fight the Fed. The Fed is, uh, uh, you know, the Fed has to tighten. They have to kill inflation. Uh, Michael Howell said it very well. You know, it's, it doesn't, it's not something you kill in a month. It's something you kill in a, in a few years. So I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm going to repeat what I did because I think it's quite important. So I've been a big advocate of cash. Uh, I'm more than 50% cash now, but for the first time, this month, I actually took money out of accounts. So I took out an X percent from accounts. So I, I went a step further because I actually think, and I did this for you know, my own protection to prevent from doing anything stupid, but I think the next few months are going to be very bad. Summer liquidity with a hawkish Fed. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, Michael Howell was saying about 3,200, but possibly 2,500. But in a, you know, in a vacuum, if you have bad numbers or something happens in the summer with a very bad liquidity, I don't, don't really want to be there. So we have a few bad months, but I have a feeling that we're still heading for the 2000, 2002 scenario. And a friendly reminder, 2000 wasn't a bad year. 2002 was the worst year. So 2000, the S&P was down, say, 10. 2001, the S&P was down 12, whatever it was. But 2002, the S&P was down 22%. Because yeah, that's yeah. when the recession hit. Yeah, shrub, that's shrub, 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 100%. That ties in with Cantorance. By the way, you're going to laugh. But I was listening to you talk, and you said, we're heading for the 2000, 2002. I'm like, wait a second. He mean, meaning... Shrub thinks the market's going, the SP is going to 2,200. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but we're, on, we're on the, I mean, it's the Shrub. Let's argue against ourselves now, okay? Let's not, let's not, because you, you and I think the same way. We like each other, whatever. So, you know, I get in violent arguments with myself. I, I, I know you do as well. So let's try to argue against our position. And, the, and, and you and I have, have talked to, we've had this discussion a few times over the last few months. And I, and I still keep coming back to, my conclusion, which is I struggle, I struggle to find the plausible bullish scenario. Um, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the case for the bearish scenario becomes even stronger as we go along. So if you and I were, say, we're at Oxford or Cambridge and we're having a debate and you and I are teammates and we're handed the bullish, we have to, we have to make the bullish case. Where would you begin to try to make the bullish case? Oh, I'll start. I'll start. The bullish case is that there's an option expiring next week. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You mean, you mean you started and you stopped? You began and ended with the option expiration. Okay. That's all you got here? That's all you, hey, bro, that's all you got, bro? Okay. Let, let's take each one by one. Okay. So positioning. 
positioning, which is what I look quite a lot of. So positioning, let's start with that. So everyone says positioning is bearish. I have the numbers. We've, we've shown the numbers. A trillion went in since COVID. 20, 30 billion came out, but actually we're getting inflows every week. So positioning is out the window. People are invested. That's one. Okay. Fundamentals. Well, I mean, okay, let's say that the market P is 18 and 15, whatever. It doesn't matter. But actually, you're having EPS cuts from major retailers like Target. So advertising is down the toilet. You have uh, warnings from Snap. <laughs> so, okay. So fundamentals out the way. Oh, yeah. So you have energy inflation. You have inflation through the roof. So obviously, that's eating in margins. So fundamentals out the window. Then uh, macro. Fed. Well, the Fed is trapped. They can't print. They can't cut rates. In 2000, don't forget, in 2000, 2002, they were cutting rates because there was no, right? They were cutting rates because there was no inflation after 2002. Uh, so here, they can't cut rates. So macro-wise, actually, it's the worst macro since the 70s because your, your star player, your star player, your Michael Jordan in your, in your bull team. So let's put it this way. So the market bulls, the new Chicago bulls, the market bulls basketball team, your star player is the Fed, Michael Jordan, right? And you have Michael Jordan on the bench because you have inflation in the field. Actually, I really like that analogy. Someone should use it more. So, you know, if you're playing against inflation, you can't use the Fed to play against inflation in a bullish way. So you've, on the macro side, you kind of lost your star player. So that's done. Uh, the only thing, actually, the only bullish thing I see is that unemployment is actually quite low. And because unemployment is low, that again is reminiscent of 2000 because it encourages the Fed to tighten. If unemployment was high, you, you could have argued that the Fed would pause. But I think with unemployment low, that's my layman's view of the world is, it means that the Fed can keep tightening. So I haven't given you anything bullish except the option expiry so far. <laughs> <laughs> but look, look, like I said, so, so I'm not like a complete nihilist. Like last week I did buy... You know, I did buy a decent position in fertilizer, so there's always something that's doing very well. It's just what's, it's just what's doing very well is not what people buy. People are still buying their fangs and techs and try to uh, call the bottom in tech, whereas they're missing uh, bull markets in in uh, niche parts of the world, in niche parts of the market. Shrug, let me ask you this. We're going to have Dr. Nassau Haji speaking about you, and then we'll have Michael Kay. Shrug, let me ask you this. You and I have virtually identical views of the world. So a logical extension of what you're saying, I believe this, and I think you do as well, but I just want the audience to understand this. Don't you, doesn't it, it seems to me, I think now is perhaps the easiest time in mm, 15, 20 years to beat the market. Because the I index, the, the index yeah. is so screwed up with all these growth stocks and tech stocks, the duration of the indices has never been great. Would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I agree 100%. I agree 100% because, you know, the stuff that is actually working is less than 10% of the market. And we've been, you know, everyone on this space, everyone on the spaces, you, uh, 
and the other participants, I mean, we've identified the winners over the last six months. So that's less than 10% of the market. And thankfully, we've been overweight that part. But that part is actually doing extremely well. I mean, it's doing better than it's ever done. <laughs> so, um, so if you avoid the other 90% or short it, it's the best alpha you could have done. And actually, we, we should be grateful a bit to the ESG funds because they created that, this opportunity for us. Um, I think the ESG created a massive, ESG plus passive actually created this massive distortion that allowed us the opportunity to put probably the best long short trade in a very long time. Very, very long time. Thanks for that, Shrub. Please stay on. Uh, we're going to go to Dr. Nasa Haji and then Michael Kay. Anas, good to see you again. What's on your mind, my friend? Thank you, George. Uh, thank you, Three Aces. Uh, I'll start first with a political statement uh, that has uh, economic and financial implications uh, for the U.S. economy and everyone in the market. Um, please, if you find some of the stuff I'm going to say shocking, um, yes, it is, and you better believe it. Uh, if you think P Putin influenced 2016 elections, wait until you see the midterm and 2024 elections. Uh, Democrats and the Biden uh, and the Biden administration are desperate. Uh, Putin is playing a big game, way bigger than what people think. That is why Biden has no choice but to meet with the Saudi leaders um, and uh, probably get a decision on this within uh, hours or days. Uh, so the meeting is going to happen, whether in Saudi Arabia or not. And... Uh, Will he get what he wants from the Saudis? I don't believe so. So you can believe the implications. I'm going to uh, explain some of the issues uh, here. China and Russia do not want this meeting to happen. Uh, just to give you an idea on what happened uh, in the last few days. Uh, President Obama gave a speech at uh, Stanford on cybersecurity. Someone... Uh, took part of that speech, cut it, and uh, uh, translated to Arabic. So it was intended literally for the Arab people and mainly the Saudis. And then a Chinese entity started promoting the video within Saudi Arabia and the Arab world. And the video basically is saying, in a sense, what the text that goes around the video and the implications of that whatever happened during the Arab Spring after Notice this, Obama visit to Saudi Arabia and Egypt, uh, uh, the Arab Spring happened. And Obama in the speech, in the video, uh, is saying exactly how they ruined those countries and they removed governments and installed the new governments. And the message is, look, Obama visited you and a few weeks later you have the Arab Spring and governments be removed. And now Biden is coming to the Arab world, so expect the same well, what happened is Obama was talking about cybersecurity and he was talking literally about uh, Putin and Steve Bannon. So they removed the names, they removed the word Russian from the video, and they removed the American people and America and the United States from the video and made it look like uh, as if he's talking about the Arab world. So you can see the, uh, who has interest in this meeting and who has no, uh, uh, no interest in it. Uh, the fact is, political problems and political turmoil in oil-producing countries happen always during periods of high oil prices. 
We have one incident where only one incident in history where people think it was low prices. It really depends on where you start the bottom of oil prices. Uh, the other fact is, as oil and gas prices rise, work, workers, and I'm talking about the democratic countries here, uh, workers will go on strike, leading to lower supplies and higher prices. So from the fact number one, oil prices basically might experience increase because of political problems. Now, I, I want you to, to put this in the political context of the meeting of uh, Biden with the Saudis. And with labor strikes, we already have seen one in Norway uh, will increase prices. Then you look at OPEC decision last week, OPEC plus decision. OPEC decided to forward the end of the production deal from the end of September to the end of August. And therefore, they have this addition in September they need to deal with. So what they did is they divided that into two halves and spread that between July and August. And they, uh, they increased the amount of the ceiling increase. The word ceiling is, uh, here is important, not production. The ceiling increased from 432,000 barrels a day to 648,000 barrels a day uh, uh, happened because of dividing the September edition. Uh, and people look at this as this is an olive branch to Biden trying to help him with lower prices. That's nonsense. The reason why, because we are not going to see any of the addition in the oil market. Uh, this is going to go to domestic consumption. Uh, temperatures rise in July and August and September. They usually have something we call the power burn. Uh, that's when they need additional cooling and they use fuel oil and sometimes crude oil to produce electricity. So we are not going to see that. That's another factor why uh, oil prices might go up too. So you can see where Biden uh, is coming from uh, when he meets with the Saudis. And the idea here is the whole uh, space today basically is about inflation and the role of inflation and, and probably uh, recession. Rise in oil prices on its own does not cause inflation and does not cause a recession. I know there is a conventional wisdom there, uh, especially among macroeconomists, that uh, rise in oil prices cause inflation and recession. Uh, I can prove it easily without any problems. All you got to do is just look at the data without any bias, and you can see it. The problem is how the government and the Fed react to rising oil prices. Historically, if you look at this for the last 55 years or more, what you see is we ended up with high oil prices, then a recession because the Fed reaction, because of the government reaction. Otherwise, there is no reason to have a recession from high oil prices. Just look at the period between 2002 and 2008 to see that. So there is no uh, problem uh, here. Uh, I said Putin is playing a big game. Look at what's happening right now. And, and the media is ignoring that. All of a sudden, within one week, we have Kazakhstan announcing that they produce less oil. Saudi Arabia saying they are going to send less oil to China so China can buy more from Russia. Uh, Algeria basically is threatening Europe to uh, cut uh, natural gas uh, supplies. And Algeria is an ally of Putin. So you can see the game he is uh, playing around uh, where he is literally tightening the ropes. Uh, so supplies are going to be less and less uh, in this case. Um, the, we ended up with two cases uh, right now where we have fire in the United States. All of a sudden, you end up with, at the time, 
Algeria is tightening, Saudis are tightening, Kazakhstan is tightening. All of a sudden, we have a fire in an LNG, LNG plant, and uh, it's a, a very large LNG plant in Texas, and LNG exports to Europe decline. And all of a sudden, at the same time, we have an interconnector problem in England that prevents the flow of all supplies to the EU. So you can see what's going to happen to LNG prices and gas prices within the EU and who is uh, uh, the uh, game uh, in this case. At the same time, uh, China announced uh, a new uh, lockdowns. What China is doing? People say, well, this is going to decrease the, the this is going to decrease demand. No, they are building their strategic petroleum reserves. They are preparing for the worst. Uh, so the situation, especially from a political point of view and its implications uh, on uh, the uh, world, is getting worse and worse. Here is the iron. Uh, Russia is selling its oil at a discount uh, that reaches probably forty dollars, and who is buying it? China and India. And with China and India buying them, what they are going to do with them? If they fill up all their SPR, then what next? They have no choice. Well, we, we, they cannot buy anymore. And some people say, look, you know, Russian economy is going to collapse because they cannot sell anymore. Absolutely incorrect. What we are seeing right now is uh, India is reselling, rebranding Russian oil and selling it to Europe as Indian oil. Uh, uh, China and India is selling products to Europe coming from Russian crude. And we are going to see more and more of that. Lavrov visit to Algeria and, and Saudi Arabia is about swaps. Uh, his visit to Iran and the cooperation with Iran is about swaps. So we are going to see Russian oil probably even in the United States through those swaps. Who knows? Uh, so uh, the idea that we are going to have, uh, despite all the bullish factors that I mentioned, the idea that uh, Russian crude is going to decline substantially is nonsense, and therefore probably will stay where we are. Uh, and in terms of uh, uh, inflation, we are going to uh, suffer probably for a long time. And watch that visit to Saudi Arabia, because the Saudi reaction is going to play a big role in the Saudi economy. Uh, if, if there is some sort of a solution... Uh, Saudis alone can help Biden big time. Why? Because they own the largest refinery in the United States. And that refinery should have experienced a massive expansion as we speak right now. And that's been stalled. And that refinery, if they do the expansion one way or the other, whether petrochemicals or products, it can add three, four hundred thousand barrels a day uh, easily for the next 30 years. So still, whether you like it or not, whether on crude front or the products front, the Saudis remain a big player here. Back to you, George. That was a masterful uh, review of the situation, uh, Dr. Hodge. can't appreciate it more. So, um, net, net, I mean, I remember in our space a few weeks ago, um, you very carefully laid out the risk and the rewards. And I know we talked about the risks as well, which is we get a recession a few hundred thousand barrels, I think 400,000 of them be through, might come off the market. I mean, sorry, demand might just might weaken. So the oil price could come down, blah, blah, blah. Well, that was about a month ago. So what is sort of your current thinking as you've seen data points come along? Are you becoming more optimistic or less optimistic? Any change in view on your part? Uh, no, uh, the, uh, the symbol, okay, let me speak in symbols. Uh, in the short run, uh, we have a completely unclear picture because we need more information about the recession. 
and whether we are in recession, we are heading for a recession, whether we are going to have just low economic growth, we, we, we need more information. I know uh, you and others basically believe we are already in recession. Uh, if we are already in a recession, uh, the, we are going to see a decline uh, in uh, oil demand. We, we might see lower prices. If prices decline substantially, we are going to see a reaction from the Saudis and the Russians. And here, let me uh, mention a very important point so people can understand what's going on and how to connect the dots. Uh, about a couple of weeks ago, probably 10 days, the head of Luke Oil, which is the largest oil company in Russia, wrote an op-ed, uh, an article or a column in, the major, in a major newspaper in Russian. So notice this. He wrote it in Russian in a major newspaper. Uh, and the question is, why in Russian in a major newspaper? Who, who are the audience? This guy is from the inner circle of Putin. And he said, literally, Russia must cut its oil production by two to three million barrels a day and not sell at a discount. We don't know who is the target, but probably he was sending a message to India or others if it was international. Probably he was sending a message to uh, uh, the army leaders, the Russian army leaders, or, or even to Putin, we don't know. Uh, but the idea here is this article being there uh, from the CEO of the largest oil company. He is asking for a cut in production, a massive cut. Then Lavrov goes to the Gulf and visits Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and others. And there we might find some explanation what he meant, because Lavrov uh, assured the Gulf states that Russia will remain in OPEC plus no matter what. And Russia is extremely important to Saudi Arabia and other countries. Don't believe Whatever Biden is going to give the Saudis, don't believe they are going to let this relationship go. Russia is has a veto power in the Security Council, in the UN Security Council. Russia is the voice of OPEC+. Plus. Russia is the voice of Saudi Arabia. And look at their votes. They helped Saudi Arabia with Yemen in, in the vote in the UN Security Council. And they helped Saudi Arabia when they voted on climate change policies. Uh, so th that is priceless. Uh, but when Lavrov came in, he came with several uh, files, and one of the files, basically, we can see the answer to the uh, Luke Oil CEO, uh, uh, and he said uh, something along the line that if we end up with a recession and global demand declines, we are willing to cut production up to two or three million barrels a day. If you put this story and this story together, the numbers match, but whether they meant that, so in a sense, one of the explanations to what Luke Oil uh, president says that it is an assurance to the Saudis, ignore Biden, we are standing by you. Back to you. That's that's terrific on us. Uh, Shrub or three, um, do you have a, or Oil God, Oil God, you haven't spoken up. You're uh, all things energy. So Oil God, uh, do you have a, a question for or, or three aces or Shrub uh, for Dr. Haji, please? Oil God, unmute yourself, please. Hello, George. Uh, thank you very much for bringing me up, George. Uh, a fantastic space as always. Nice to see you, uh, Dr. Nas Shrub, and obviously everybody who knows what they're talking about. Um, I, I think everything the doctor says is going to lead to painfully higher and higher inflation. Uh, we have definitely a different geopolitical landscape, as the good doctor is pointing out. I mean, it's not, not as simple as the United States might in history, because some of these other nations obviously have 
you know, looking forward, they have much different allegiances to one another. And I think uh, what Dr. Anas is saying with respect to the UN Security Council is, is almost invaluable, just given what's happening in countries like, you know, Yemen and the instability of the Middle East. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what happens with Venezuela, Iran. Uh, and of course, you know, we've got the narrative here in, the, in North America of the doubling down of climate change, probably going into the midterm election. So, you know, simply put, when you have an inflationary environment, and, and whether it's goods or commodities, the answer to the inflation is you must create more. You must create more supply. You must create more refrigerators. You must recreate more oil and gas to bring the prices down. And in this case, it doesn't look like we're going to be in a situation where that can happen. Um, so I guess, George, the question I had, and it was actually going to be for Tommy, uh, but obviously I had a difficult time getting up here, so thank you for bringing me up. Um, the question I had is that obviously the recommendation is cash. You know, if, if, of course, if the equity markets in the United States continue to collapse, which you know, I know, and we all agree that, you know, we're in a dead cat bounce today, a bearish rally or whatever they call it, and, and then it's going to give straight all this inflation we were all agreeing upon. You know, my question to you is inflation on the other end of cash is still eroding value. Have we been here in the past, um, you know, and I'm not trying to get your eyes back to the oil markets, but in general, it could be gold and silver like your, you know, your co-host likes. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious to know in the past, if you have inflation running so difficultly hot, so high and rates have to go up, that's going to erode the value of cash. And so it reminds me of, you know, kind of, and this isn't a similar interest rate period, but it was a similar period of turmoil. When COVID hit, we had the stock market to 30% in a month. And it's largely due to the liquidity squeeze of people borrowing money. And then all of a sudden the economy shutting down, businesses aren't making any money or people don't have any ability to pay the interest. They're forced to sell stocks. Then the Fed comes out and says a bunch of things that are political, Largely, because COVID is arguably just coming to an end now. And then you had the market rally up until, you know, let's just call it January. So my question to you is, if it's cash, don't you run the risk of the government's doing or saying something stupid, just given how high inflation is? Uh, and then you're just left to time a market that is insanely irrational. So I just want to ask you that question. But other than that, I completely agree with Dr. Anasa saying inflation is going to be higher for longer. Thank you. Seriously. So, oh, oh, God, I'm sure I love your comments. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit confused. What exactly is the question, please? The question is, is we have cash, you know, in 2020 worth 0.5 percent. If cash in 2022 to 2023, when this great reckoning is coming, could be worth closer to 2 to 3 percent. My question to you is. Um, you know, if inflation is running at, let's call it 8 to 10%, what's the incentive of holding cash for longer? Wouldn't these asset mass charging fees do anything they can to invest the money to outperform inflation? Well, so let me answer it this way. Um, we've to try to remove participant bias. Let's take our let's take our cast our minds back to say Amsterdam in the 17th century at the time of tulip bulbs, or Beanie Babies. About 20 years ago, you pumped up the price of these worthless assets through excess money creation. There's little, if anything, that can be done to support that. Once the momentum breaks, I mean, people are buying this crap not because of any inherent value, value, just because number go up, bro. 
Well, once momentum dissipates and goes the other way, they'll sell it for one reason and one reason only. And that's because number go down, bro. So there's not a whole lot that can be done to support the price of tulip bulbs or Kathy Woodstocks or um, uh, um, uh, Beanie Babies. And so if the choice is Beanie Babies or cash, I think anyone in their right mind would say, well, I'll take, I'll take cash, please, instead of Beanie Babies. So then you say, okay, well, the price of cash is, is falling by 8 or 10% or 15% uh, in real terms, which is where your question goes. And so we're not off buying something which is at least hedged or levered to the, to the thing which is causing cash to be devalued, i.e. inflation. The answer is yes. So um, I like the way you asked the question because you're not trying to rail me into getting you to support the oil position. But ultimately, that's where it goes. You want to own the thing. The way you hedge against the inflation is by buying the inflation. Um, you, you buy the scarce asset. Kathy Woodstocks and Beanie Babies and Tulips are not scarce assets. Oils, oil barrels of oil coming out of the ground are scarce assets. Yeah, yes, you still in, in, in inevitably led back to energy. The real question is, and the reason I became more cautious in in recent um, uh, in, 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 in recent weeks, is because I was worried about a more generalized decline. So you can do it either one or two ways. You either say, "Well, we have a big generalized decline; it's all going to go down." And we'll just just be on the sidelines, kind of what I've done. Or whenever I own energy, I've you know I've got the Kathy Wood position on as the hedge. So you know either way, I, I just am afraid to be naked long anything because I'm fearful of a generalized decline. You go from you know rising uh, uh, interest rates, bond prices going down to uh credit uh, uh positions uh conditions intensifying problems intensifying to maybe we have a liquidity drain and in that scenario anything that's not uh tied down can be sold so that's the cautionary note but ultimately i struggle i find it uh in, in impossible to um um uh i find it very difficult to see the scenario uh where um um, you know, energy does not outperform the market generally. Uh, and so if you said to me, you know, what's the highest sharp ratio trade? It's probably not short energy. It's, it's probably, it's not long energy. It's long energy against something else. And whether you want the something else to be consumer stocks or Kathy Wood stocks or the market more generally, I think that's a higher sharp ratio trade because you're hedging out the potential of a generalized market decline. I also think it's a higher absolute return trade. It dominates all other trades. So, you know, my fellow Canadian oil mafia brethren, I just want to let you know how you've been missing out. Um, you know, um, you actually have missed it. Um, the only thing better than owning Canadian energy stocks this year, or energy stocks generally, has been to be long energy and short Kathy Wood. So I'm just going to pick uh, Eric Nuttall, who um, uh, we can just use him as a benchmark so we don't get caught up in the idiosyncratic risks of any particular um, any particular uh, uh, name. Um, Mr. Nuttall's fund uh, is up about 80% this year. Um, however, um, if you were long Nuttall and short Kathy Wood, uh, you would have made 80% on the long and you would have made about 60% on the short. So you'd be up 140%. And my view is not only is that a higher return trade, 
but it's also a lower risk trade. I hope that answers the question. Um, George, I just want to make two quick comments and then I'm going to cede the floor. Um, I want to thank you for your humility. Uh, one of the reasons I love you and your spaces is because you tell it how it is and you don't bullshit. And it takes a man to really say what you do know and what you don't know and work with the experts. And, you know, you don't know what it means to the younger generation to hear that from somebody from your generation because we're not used to hearing that. And so I want to applaud you on that. The second thing I want to say is point to an earlier speaker, and this is going off of the good doctor who, I, you know, I consider an uncle, which in Middle Eastern culture is about as complimentary as you can get for a family member. Um, the good doctor had mentioned the thing that's likely going to come about the political, you know, scrambling the Biden administration is dealing today. Uh, what does he have to do? Well, he has to go to Saudi Arabia in an attempt to alienate, obviously, what Russia and China are going to attempt to do uh, with respect to, you know, influence of the United States. Let's, let's just use the doctor's thesis and say it's not going to go well for Biden. A previous speaker had talked about the short interest in energy and energy equities. All I'm going to tell you is watch. Because you've got two convoluting things happening at sorry, two things diverging at the same time. You've got Q2 earnings, where you, George, were the person first to bring this to most people's attention. The dollar strength and what that does to Canadian energy earnings. Well, the dollar's strong and they're about to go into Q2 earnings with WTI prices averaging somewhere between $120 to $130 equivalent for the Canadian producers. The second thing you're going to have is geopolitical risk to the upside when these squeezes get short. I'm going to leave it at that. I want to thank you again, George, and Anas Shrub. And, um, you know, again, thank you. You've done a great job and a great service to the rest of us. Thank you, Olga. I appreciate that. Thanks for your kind words. Hey, three aces. Are, are you there, three aces? I am. I'm listening. Yeah, okay. I, I have to step away for 10 minutes. If you could please run the room. Uh, I have to step away for no 10 problem. minutes. I'll be back. No right. problem, hey. man. Thank you. Hey, Dr. Hey, three aces. Can I, can I ask a question yeah, to Anas, hey, or do you want to go, go first? Go, no, yeah, no, go thanks. For it. I... Dr. Anas, look, there's something that I've been really struggling to understand, um, and I think most people don't really uh, think about it. So we have uh, WTI at 120, but obviously diesel is, you know, 300. So the, the crack spreads are adding, uh, you know, more than $80 per barrel. Yet obviously politicians are attacking the oil firms, but no one's saying, oh, how do we deal with refining capacity? So anyway, the simple question is, if WTI is 120 and diesel is 300 or whatever it is, the obvious thing is for the cons to to actually be bullish the consumer is how do do we see the refining margins coming in to more reasonable levels because that would be the real boost to the consumer versus oil going down twenty dollars if you can get the refining margins down sixty or something so I, I'm I'm really struggling to understand that uh, if you don't mind. Uh, generally speaking, uh, we have a serious problem worldwide. Uh, uh, and it's twofold problem. The first problem, uh, during COVID, uh, the demand for products, for petroleum products, declined substantially. And what you get in a, when you are in a refinery, uh, even if there is no demand for a certain product, you are going to produce it no matter what, because that's the way the, the, uh, the refinery is configured. 
uh, they have kind of a leeway in terms of percentages here and there, etc. But there are certain products that are not in demand will be will be produced no matter what. So how the market reacted with the surplus? They started mixing. So uh, uh, the jet fuel demand got hit because the number of flights uh, globally declined substantially. But you have a lot of jet fuel. So what you do? You try to minimize the production of jet fuel on one hand. And you would try to increase the demand for jet fuel by mixing it with other products that are in demand and that in a way that does not change the, the, the function of the product. So this mixing uh, lasted for over uh, a year and to unwind, that takes time. So this is the background. And then we have serious problems because of the impact of COVID, because of people uh, left the industry and never came back. Uh, we have some technical problems. We have the hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, and we have the environmental regulations uh, that uh, some of them existed before. Uh, we have some refineries that completely shut down because some private equity just ruined it, uh, and they couldn't uh, sell it. They couldn't do anything because of the environmental regulations. So all the issues combined add to it that India and China limited the exports of products uh, in recent uh, months, as a re supposedly as a reaction to uh, the Russian invasion, and they don't want to, uh, to experience shortages. So we have shortages all over. Some of it is organic shortage, and some of it as the result of politics. So the situation will ease, especially now India and China are exporting the products that are coming from Russian oil. So that will ease and the margins will decline. But that's not going to solve the U.S. problem at all, because as margins decline, especially if they decline substantially, there is no incentive for U.S. refiners to produce more. And uh, the U.S., whoever we are going to have in the office in 2025, they have really to look really hard at the refining sector. And we have to have a very clear view on how to deal with it. Other, otherwise, the U.S. is going to start importing gasoline and diesel from around the world. And yet, we have the share revolution. We produce 11.6 uh, uh, million barrels a day of oil, but we are short gasoline, we are short diesel, and we are going to import that from uh, uh, various countries. And, and God forbid, we might go back and import it from Russia again. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. So basically, it's a structural issue. We shouldn't be expecting an easing back to the pre-COVID levels at this point. And we're talking about a few months, obviously, like months to normalize to something like a higher base, right? Uh, in a sense, the structural issue is, is part of the story, not the whole story. Right. Thank you so much. Hey, Doc. How are you, my man? Uh, excellent. excellent. Uh, question for you. So, do you mind walking us through how many barrels a day we were producing at peak, how many we're, we're producing now, and then if we are, you know, I know George doesn't want to talk about the recession word, but if or when we go into a recession, what that might look like in terms of a surplus of oil and what impact that might be on the market, if there would be one. Thank you. Uh, generally speaking, uh, we, we hit, I think, 13.6 uh, million barrels a day at the peak. 
and then declined to below 10. Now we are at 11.6. So we are 2 million barrels below the peak in crude production. And we are about 2 million barrels a day in refining below peak. Uh, the If we end up with a recession, so we can combine both ideas here. If we end up with a recession, I think what uh, Oil God was uh, uh, alluding to is the following. Uh, many of those uh, oil companies, especially the shale companies, uh, they suffered even uh, after uh, after 2020 uh, simply because of hedging. They hedged at low prices, so they were making 40 to $50 while oil prices were above 75 But those hedges already ended, and now they are hedging at the higher uh, price no matter what. So even if we have a recession, most of those oil companies uh, whether the Canadian or the U.S. Uh, companies, especially shell companies, those that are hedged, uh, they will be fine. Uh, especially if the duration of the recession is is no longer than nine months. Uh, but there are companies literally that bought their hedges and they just get out, so they are naked. Uh, they, they will uh, get their price. The question is, what is the lower price? Will we see prices below 60 in case of a recession, it is very difficult to see prices below 60 for several reasons. Um, uh, simply, we don't have enough uh, uh, investment. We don't have enough oil. We don't have enough production. But it is expected that OPEC plus with the Russians will start cutting production again to prevent prices from declining below uh, $60. Uh, one issue here I would like to bring up is the value of the dollar. Uh, the problem uh, here is this. If the dollar keeps going up, uh, even if oil prices decline, uh, prices in countries where their currencies is declining or depreciating will not decline or may not decline or will not decline as much. And therefore, this is a threat because uh, as oil prices decline in dollar, uh, they are not going to decline in non-dollar. And that is a big problem. Uh, for them. If the dollar declines, it's exactly the opposite. If we have lower oil prices and lower dollar, then uh, that encourages uh, demand for oil. So any way you look at it, it's very hard to see oil prices declining in a way that hurts the U.S. Uh, oil industry. What, what we might see is the following, that the investment that is being planned for now and next year based on current strip that investment might be delayed, and that's going to make the the case, the bullish case, in the long run even stronger. Back to you. Right. So, so would you expect to see a surplus uh, in a recession uh, to where the supply and demand uh, situation e eases a little bit, or will you still see a shortage? No, that's a great point. I'm, even today, we don't have a shortage. The idea of a shortage, basically. Uh, uh, we, we haven't even, if you look at the U.S. Uh, commercial oil inventories, we have not even touched the critical point, which is the 395 million barrels. We are way above 400 right now, and we never touched the 395. So we are still good in terms of commercial inventories, and we released 180 million uh, barrels from the SPR, and they will continue uh, releasing that for a long time. So what's going to happen is, in case of a recession, uh, you made, the, I, I think you stated this beautifully when you said it eases. And yes, it is going to ease 
the situation in the market where inventories are going to rebuild. But what's going to happen is a country like China is going to buy like crazy to replenish uh, their strategic petroleum reserves that's been withdrawing since May, 20, 000, uh, May 2021. So there will be a lot of buying for strategic petroleum reserves. Since we are talking about strategic petroleum reserves, the U.S. might, if with the decline in prices, might halt the sale of the SPR. We've seen it with Trump. Trump uh, was mandated by the Congress since 2015 to sell oil. But with a presidential order, he halted the sale because prices were low. And we might see a reversal in the Biden policy when prices decline because there is no, no need to sell that oil. However, uh, I think there is a fundamental change in U.S. policy uh, toward the SPR or the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. I think everyone realized that the Strategic Petroleum Reserves was built when the U.S. was heavily dependent on imports from the other side of the world, and, they were, uh, and the U.S. was dependent on certain crude quality imports from the rest part of the world. After the Shell Revolution, this amount of crude is not needed, and there are certain qualities not needed, and therefore you need to get rid of the SPR. I think the Biden administration took advantage of the Russian-Ukraine situation to change the SPR completely. So when they buy again, assuming they sell everything, when they buy again, probably they will they will buy only half of the quantity. The SPR will be lower than before. Uh, they sold it at a higher price, so they made money. That's good for them and good for the taxpayer. But at the same time, they, whatever they are going to buy, they are going to buy of a certain crude quality to adjust for the share revolution. The share revolution brought in light crude uh, uh, and, and condensates. Therefore, we don't need to, st to store light crude and condensate. Um, we don't store condensate anyway, but we don't need to store light crude. We need to store the heavier crude and the medium crude. And therefore, uh, there was a strategic objective from selling the uh, SPR. Therefore, the U.S. may not buy. Uh, it might hold sales, but uh, China in particular is going to buy a lot. Back to you. Yeah, doctor, before we go into a couple of hands, I'm just curious about, you know, you know where I am and where I live in my business. I'm in the emerging markets, you know, currently and and so on. I keep seeing all these crazies about diesel in the Northeast and all that stuff. You know, I'm buying diesel for $4.50 a gallon. Um, I'm just curious, you know, how much of this sort of, you know, price pressure that we're seeing and drama, uh, you know, where we've saw a bunch of it in commodities, which have passed, but it's still there in oil, um, has to do with the centralized pricing mechanism of WTI and Brent um, and do you feel like there, you know, if, if, if the crudes were priced more regionally, the carbons, um, you know, that it may have an impact on, on the overall quote unquote market for stuff, or is that, am I, am I, uh, on the wrong track there? Uh, no, uh, because we have what we call geographic differentials and we have, uh, uh quality differentials. So the system you are looking for is already happening anyway. So even regionally, you, you are going to see either discounts or premiums based on several factors. Back to you. Got it. Thank you. Uh, hey, uh, K, K Chart, uh, we're going to go to Josh. He came up first, and we'll go to you. Go ahead, Josh. Question for the doctor or anybody else in the room. Sorry, 
I was on mute. Sorry. Yeah, uh, 3H yeah. is really, really appreciated, man. I love your space, man. I really love you both. Uh, I really love it, man. I love the space. Uh, I have a question for the Doc. Uh, the, I, you just mentioned also about the oil. Every time oil goes higher, which is uh, which is just happened in 19, uh, pretty much 1990 happened, then in two, 2000 happened, and then it happened in 2008. Every time recessions uh, hits, you said before, there is always oil price all oil price always goes up right so what do you think at this time you think the uh, recession we are already into recession or we you think oil first gonna pick pick out and then we're gonna in the in the recession and then if we will be in the recession you think the oil price will remain or is the oil price gonna go down with the recession um since this is a macro question i would leave that to georgia and three aces and other uh, people who talk about macro Thanks. Okay, no problem. So probably I would add another thing in this point. Uh, uh, three years is actually what I think is this probably because of we have to look at that. This is the scenario where we have never happened in history. Yeah, Josh, yeah. Josh, Josh. We we have uh, twelve hundred people in the room, oh, okay. uh, and the doctor doesn't like to talk about market prices. He's a strategist and yeah. a, a researcher on on the on the quantitative side for industry. Do me a favor, sit there for a few minutes. We got a couple of questions. Just uh, okay, chart. And then we're going to go to somebody, Amir Al-Sulaim, please. Go ahead, KHR. Question for the doctor. Yeah, I got a question for both of you. I guess George had stepped away. All right, so somebody mentioned that the gold and silver, right, possible as, as places to look other than cash, right? If we can get to that later as we're, we're done with the energy or the commodity side of the conversation, um, what do you see, right, would be catalysts uh, for those areas to, I guess, start gaining a little bit more momentum in, in the precious metals. The doctor, uh, I'm sure you had seen this, uh, not this weekend, but the previous weekend, Chevron CEO uh, had come on to Bloomberg. Um, they have a show over the weekend. So the CEO, as well as chairman, and had stated that the refining capacity that you had mentioned briefly, I know we've been talking production of barrels of oil, but the refining capacity, there hasn't been a new refinery built in the United States since the 1970s. The largest refinery in the U.S., Motiva Enterprises, by volume, if I'm correct, was bought by OPEC, or I shouldn't say OPEC, the, the, the Saudi uh, government back in 2017 after her Harvey. The remaining stake, I believe, at that time was owned by Royal Dutch Shell. Do you see that as well because of that refining capacity that you did speak was roughly also 2 million barrels or you know, around that amount uh, below the high capacity? Do you see that continuing to also be a, a problem when it comes to the stabilization of the prices or not? Uh, first of all, we do need to distinguish between messaging that is intended for politics or strategy versus messaging related to the market. Uh, that applies uh, to OPEC, for example, just for clarity. If you listen to OPEC ministers when they are in OPEC meetings or the conferences, uh, the press conferences, uh, what they said is completely different from what they said in general conferences. So you look at what the UAE minister said last week uh, or the others they were talking about, we don't have enough capacity, etc. But they never said that in OPEC meetings, remember. So, excuse me, just a second. <coughs> so uh, we have a uh, an issue here where 
everyone knows in the Gulf that Biden is going to visit the Gulf. So there was there is a lot of messaging going on. We should not base our investment on political messaging, uh, but we should be considerate and 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 uh, look at into it. The same thing for Chevron CEO when he said we don't uh, uh, we did not we have not built uh, a refinery in uh, a very long time. So look at those numbers, which is kind of really uh, counter what he said. Uh, but and that proves the point was uh, more strategic and, and uh, political. Uh, crude into refineries increased from 11 million barrels a day in the mid 80s to 18 million barrels a day before COVID. So yes, we did not build any refineries during that period, but the the ability to process crude increased by 7 million barrels a day. How did you do that? Look at the other number. U.S. consumption of products, that's petroleum products, increased from 16 million to 22 million. So we have 6 million barrels a day increase in consumption. Where did that come from? U.S. And you might say, well, we imported more because we don't have enough capacity. Look at this number. U.S. petroleum products, that petroleum product exports increased from 2 million barrels a day in 2010 to 6 million in 2022. I know that most of this are uh, 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 gas liquids, but still our, our uh, exports of gasoline increased substantially and other products too. So how did we do that? We did that because of the brownfield expansion of refineries. So we did not build new refineries, but we expanded the current refineries. And that brings us to what I said, what I mentioned earlier. Motiva, which is owned by Saudi Aramco, the largest refinery in the United States, it was intended for expansion and then they couldn't. And they could have expanded. Guess what? Saudi Arabia right now is awash with money. They have a lot of money. They have the PIF, which is the sovereign fund of the government that that is intended to be the largest in the world. They are looking for investment worldwide. And this is part of the negotiations probably with Biden, which is the Saudi investment in the United States. Will they expand the refinery? Will they buy uh, other refineries and expand them? That's why there is a solution that is in the hand of Saudis because they have the money and they own the uh, company. So what Chevron CEO says, basically, to me, is more of a messaging uh, than actual reality. Refiners today can expand their own refineries. They can modify. They can be more efficient. They can increase efficiency, etc., cetera, uh, to increase uh, production. However, the environmental regulations of refineries is a serious problem. Then we have another issue that climate change uh, uh, um, or let me say it, um, those who are on the extreme left of climate change, they are using every opportunity to, to literally derail the oil industrial, the refining capacity. What they are saying right now is there is a, a, a kind of a, an environmental justice and discrimination against uh, African-Americans. Why? Because they found out that African-Americans live around the refineries uh, and, and they get all the pollution and all the negative health impact and this stuff. And they forgot an old law from the Roman times. When it comes to those issues and who is hurting, uh, who, who is hurting whom, it depends on who is there first. 
had the had the oil industry moved the refineries to black neighborhoods or they built the refineries outside the cities far away from everyone and then everyone moved around the refineries but yet climate change extremists are using that so they are moving beyond the issue of environment and climate change to uh, social justice and discrimination against african-americans back to you thank you Thanks, thank you Dr. for your Thank you. I forgot. Garbanzeria. Garbanzeria. Hey, my brother. Come on up. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? So I have a question for the doctor. We're building all these EVs. New cars we produce get greater gas mileage. In in theory, should demand be dropping, not rising? Uh, Jeff, I think we should have a, a special space on this because that takes a long time to talk about. Uh, but briefly, uh, look at this. Um, if you look at the IEA uh, forecast to 2045, uh, you will see uh, uh, they are forecasting a major drop in oil demand uh, because not because of electric vehicles, but because of improvement in efficiency of ICE vehicles. Looks ironic. So the largest drop in the forecast is in the improvement of efficiency of gasoline and diesel cars, not in the number of EVs. The problem is, if you really look at the numbers, the efficiency they are looking at makes electric vehicles obsolete. And you cannot have it both ways. If I'm going to have this efficiency and it's way better than electric vehicles, why do I need electric vehicles? So you can see that those numbers and the forecasts are made up. But uh, we'll be happy to discuss this in more details. Uh, I think we've done it once uh, about five months ago, uh, and it is a very interesting topic. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely going to go back and and, uh, listen to that. I'll bug George about it. Thanks. Thanks for the answer. See you, Jeffy. Hey, I'm here. my brother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for giving me the chance. I'm just going to say a few uh, remarks. And I would like the uh, the gentleman, I appreciate uh, his thinking so very much, Dr. Anas, to comment uh, after I say maybe three, four points. No more than 40 seconds. The, the, every time I hear Trey talk, it just, I cannot you know, stop thinking like going in a cruise, beautiful casino, and everybody enjoying their trades. They forget that they are not playing against each other. They play against the dealer. Now, uh, some of you earlier said, I'm not sure whether I should believe the newsmakers or the traders. Now, you can believe the traders or the newsmakers as you want. However, you have to understand that the traders are playing to win short term. The newsmakers' problem is that they always have hidden agendas. You don't know who to believe. My comment, we are not in a business-as-usual situation. And my advice to the traders, you can trade or you can sell, sorry, you can sell or you can buy. My advice to go with the or. 
Now we are going through a turbulence, really serious turbulence situation. When the oil price went up to $140, immediately after, shortly after that, it went all the way down to $37. And I don't know if you remember Dr. Anas, about two months ago, uh, when, I, when the price of oil was about $70, I said, wait until July, it's gonna hit 200. And I can see it clearly moving now, what is it, 121? It's moving to that target. Sorry, too many comments I made, Dr. Anas and everybody, but I always enjoy your discussion. Remember, you're not in a casino, you're on a ship in a turbulence mode. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amir. I, I can see you're a corporate, uh, uh, we're a co corporate officer of the largest oil and gas company in the world. We appreciate you coming in. Um, just curious, um, what part of the price structure here would you attribute to short-term speculation given Ukraine and and, and uh, ESG and, and the wacko political in Washington, D.C. these days. Do you think there's a premium there? I think uh, we're going through a very strange situation. We have four crazy leaders. Allow me to say the word crazy. And I'm not going to say and name any one of them. Four crazy leaders. And they are pushing all kinds of buttons God knows for whose benefit. You know what's the inflation now in the U.S.? It's more than 9.6%. You know that people are starting to eat spaghetti and tomato in Italy. And why? Why are we doing this? Why? There's something not right, and I think it will transpire. It will resolve itself, like every time, you know, the world going to... Chaos, it resolves itself. It will resolve itself in two months. Somebody has to give in. What's happening in Ukraine is a shame to humanity. A shame to humanity. Nobody should be sitting in their house or flat expecting a bomb. Nobody, nobody. I don't know. In two months, things will transpire. I, I could not agree with you more. Uh, we had some folks come up um, who may want to ask some questions. Where were they? Uh, was it Bick? Bick, do you want to go next? Yeah. Hi. Uh, this is a question to doctor. So I am trying to understand the bigger picture of this Ukrainian war. And uh, I am thinking of a scenario, a big chase play by the Russians to capture the market, long-term market share from the Middle Eastern country. So what they, what the, what the game of Russia could be that as because of the efficiency, this efficiency of the ICE engine will come from the hybrid vehicles because hybrid vehicles will get 100%, 200% more mileage from the battery small battery which we can afford so as in the longer term although in the shorter term i'm oil bullish but in the medium longer term due to this efficiency of hybrid engines and pure ev the oil demand will surely go down and in that case 
Russia want to capture the main growth market, which is India and China, and give the where the uh, the demand will fall, which is the European Union market to the Middle Eastern country. So it may be that it is a bigger picture energy transition, big game plan of Russians to capture the biggest ghost market from the Middle Eastern countries. What is your view, doctor? Uh, Beck, uh, on both fronts, uh, I'm sorry to say you are wrong. Uh, the first one is uh, uh, Russia and the rest of OPEC Plus, they complement each other and there is no competition, especially when the demand is rising. On the second front, let on the uh, EV and the efficiency, etc., let the numbers speak. For all demand to stay where it is today at 100 million, we need 700 million electric vehicles on the road by 2050. 700 million. And when I say electric vehicles, I'm not talking about scooters. I'm talking about the four uh, the, the four wheeled actual cars. We need 700 million just to keep demand where it is. Uh, right now. So the idea that demand will decline, you need more than 700 million. How many vehicles we have today in the world? Less than 30 million. So imagine the difference. Uh, and imagine how much uh, cobalt, lithium, and nickel, or whatever new metals and minerals you need. Imagine how much you need for that. Uh, regardless of all of this, uh, remember the following. Uh, myself, I am very bullish on oil in the long run. And I say bullish, probably more bullish than anyone else in the world. Why? Let me explain to you a technical issue. Uh, if we need 100 million, let's go with your view that demand will decline. Let's go with 75 million. So demand will decline from 100 million to 70 million. Let's go with your view. That 75 million in 2050, all of it has to be fresh oil that we don't have today which means that we need trillions of dollars of investment to get that fresh oil. And a decline in demand in the future does not necessarily mean a decline in prices because we could end up with 75 million barrels a day with the prices of $300 and with the dollar basically being at a, even a higher peak uh, than what it, where it is today. So the idea that uh, uh, lower demand is not going to happen, but even if we go with it, that still make us bullish because we don't have any of the oil. Why? Because as you extract oil, we have something called decline. So we have, that's the decline rate. We need replacement. And to replace it, we need investment. And that investment is not there yet. So any way you look at it, uh, whether the demand will decline or not, uh, uh, we, we, we are bullish on oil, but I can assure you that demand is not going to decline. Look at what happened in Louisiana just two days ago. The state of Louisiana basically mandated additional fees on electric vehicles. Uh, now we have 14 states in the United States basically imposing additional fees, fees on electric vehicles. Why? Because they don't pay gasoline tax. Look at Norway. Now Norway is reneging on its policy. And Norway is the most active, despite all the environmental things and the EV, etc. Norway is the most active country in oil exploration today. Uh, so the trend is not there. We are seeing a, a place like uh, Sweden is going back to oil fire, oil fire generation. 
So the idea that oil demand is going to decline because of these things is not going to happen. If you look at every kid in Africa, he literally wants what every American and every European wants. And 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 three aces basically saw this firsthand, and he can tell you more and more about this. Back to you, three aces. Yes, I did, doctor. I did see it firsthand. I lived it for a decade. Uh, yeah, big world out there. Hey, SR, Shiraco, Daniel will come to you. Do you have a question? Yes, sir, I do. Oh, hang on, Daniel. SR Soraka report. Come on up, brother. Yes, uh, thank you. Can you hear me? can hear you perfectly. Okay, this is Anis. I just want to make this quick. I appreciate his insight on the SPR and the capacity factor. I, I wanted to ask his opinion. Um, I don't think the market has taken this into consideration that past legislature in the U.S. has 300 million barrels already to be sold off the SPR from 2022 to 2032, in addition to the Biden 180 million. So in the next five years, they're going to sell 200 million barrels. What does he think this is, what kind of impact on the market? And is this a good idea to do? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, uh, uh, let's uh, kind of uh, set the record straight that there is an overlap between those laws. So the same quantity is accounted for twice or, or thrice. Uh, regardless, uh, long ago, years ago, there was an agreement, especially among Republicans, that we should eliminate the SPR completely. Uh, some Democrats basically agree with them because they think the SPR is a subsidy to the oil industry. And by the way, it is a subsidy. Uh, because the oil industry should hold uh, more uh, commercial reserves if there is no SPR. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, uh, many people believe that after the share revolution, uh, there is no need to hold 700 million or the 650 million that existed uh, before the withdrawal. And therefore, we should lower it simply because we are producing about 8 million barrels a day from shale that did not exist before 2010. So there are reasons, uh, real reasons, to reduce the size of the SPR no matter what. At the same time, the SPR was, when it was established in the 70s, uh, it was meant to cover uh, imports in case of an embargo or uh, natural causes or technical causes, whatever. Uh, and because shale, as you know, is light, sweet, crude, uh, and we first before we allowed exports of u.s crude in 2015 uh, we substituted imports so we stopped importing light sweet crude uh, because we already have it within the borders uh, and therefore there is no reason to store light sweet uh, uh, in uh, in caverns in the strategic reserves what you need is you need the quality that is in danger. And what is the quality in danger? It's the medium and the heavy. And therefore, we need to change the quality. So you have emphasis on quantity and you have emphasis on quality. And what Biden did was a great opportunity to do that shift in terms of quantity and quality. At the same time, make money because it's being sold at prices that are very high. And at the same time, trying to... And, and please, everyone pay attention to this. Yet... The Biden administration 
announced the release of 180 million and prices did not decline below 100. But but if you do some analysis, you find out that it prevented oil prices from reaching 140. So there was an impact on the market, but an impact that we did not uh, see. I hope this idea is clear. Thanks. Yeah. Understood. Hey, doctor, what's the story down in Venezuela and the politics and, and the potential supply there? Is there a story there or no? Uh, yes, I'm glad you asked this question. Uh, that shows uh, two, two points. The first point is it shows the Biden administration desperation on one side because they are talking to the Iranians about it and they've been shut down two days ago by the Iranians, so they have no luck with that. Uh, and their idea is they allowed... Uh, two European companies that uh, uh, the Italian uh, INE and the Spanish Ripsol to export uh, Venezuelan crude to Europe. So that was very specific to Europe. And they wanted to talk to the Iranians basically to uh, export crude to Europe without reaching a nuclear agreement. The idea here, at least from my point of view, is that uh, the Biden administration wants to strangle Putin the same way they strangled uh, Saddam Hussein, in a way that if I, I need to dry up the resources of his power, which is money, and money is coming from oil and gas, and therefore I need to make it less and less and weaken him. And therefore, I am ready to, uh, to kind of sacrifice my issues with Iran and my issues with Venezuela, especially when it comes to human rights and everything else. I'm ready to sacrifice all of that in order to weaken Putin. And therefore, the, the, the objective is clearly strategic. And let's remember that when the Biden administration asked Saudis and OPEC members in August 2021 to increase production, uh, now we understand it was exactly for the same objective because they knew that Putin was moving in and they knew they have to impose sanctions, so they wanted to strangle him, but they underestimated the power of the coalition of uh, OPEC Plus in this case. Whatever is going to come out of Venezuela is going to be exported to Europe, is going to be at the expense of Asia and other countries. Therefore, it's not going to be an additional oil. However, can Venezuela increase production? Yes. They can increase production within a very short period of time, like I'm talking about weeks, 400 to 500,000 barrels a day. Uh, if they can get the diluent, if they can get the natural gasoline, which we use C5 for it, uh, if they can get you uh, C5, uh, whether from the U.S. or other places, of course, they cannot do it right now because of the sanctions. The Russians were supplying them, and now the Iranians are supplying them with that. But they need extra to be able to increase production. If they can do that, then they can send extra oil to Europe. If they cannot get it, then they cannot do anything. It will be just switching trade from area to area, and that's going to increase uh, prices. One of the ironies is, and I wrote this on, my, uh, on Twitter, that Iran is exporting those diluents right now to, um, to Venezuela. And with any deal with Iran, this could be written, literally written, that Iran must help Venezuela. Or written. Either way, uh, there will be some sort of an agreement that Iran must help Venezuela and probably at a lower price uh, because they cannot ask the Russians to do so unless they and until they legally lift the sanctions 
or give exemptions to some U.S. producers by name, they have to name the company, to allow exports of natural gasoline to Venezuela. So Venezuela can increase production by the amount I mentioned. So they can reach probably 1.2 million barrels a day. But above that, they cannot. They need long time to increase production above that amount. Back to you. Got it. Can, can uh, I ask a question real quick? Please? Sure. Go ahead. I just want to, Doctor, could you tell us what like you think Biden going to Saudi? What do you think comes of that, and what is what do you think that this meeting is about? Besides, oil, uh, obviously, the the political implications are huge. Uh, but we don't know anything about the economic implications and what is the impact on the oil market and the gasoline market. My hence, basically, my uh, view is that the impact on the oil market and the gasoline market in the short run is 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 almost non-existent. Uh, the Saudis basically might uh, redirect trade; they might redirect shipments, etc. But the impact on the overall market is very uh, uh, limited. In terms of politics. I think there are some really serious, big, serious issues because you have the Yemeni file, you have the Iranian file, you have the Syria file, you have the Iraqi file, and you have the Israeli file. And then you have the islands, uh, uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia historically to avoid being on the border of Israel. They give two islands to Egypt like more than 50 years ago, which called Tehran and Sanafir. And now the Saudis ask Egypt to return it and uh, uh, Egypt returned those to Saudi Arabia. The problem is there is an agreement, part of the 1979 peace agreement between or peace accord between the Israelis and the Egyptians related to um, uh, demilitarization of the islands. And the Israelis are wondering whether the Saudis will obey by agreement or not, etc. So this is still... Uh, in dispute, and people think that this is going to be resolved in in this uh, trip when Biden goes there, and he will get assurances for Israel uh, regarding those two islands, so the transfer can be complete. Back to you. We're going to take one more oil and gas question, and I think George is going to be joining us here maybe after this question. Uh, your uh, His Excellency from uh, Saudi Arabia, please go ahead, sir. Thank you. Thank you for the excellency. I just wanted to express my utmost appreciation to this. It's always high and what makes it really beautiful. And we should really, uh, you know, give a hands up to Dr. Anas. He's sparing his energy, his knowledge and his time for free. And what I know of him through the spaces. You know, I don't know him personally, and I would be honored to know him. What I know of him is that he really volunteers. He's he's an eager person to spread good, solid knowledge. And for that, excuse me, I would have to leave. (laughs) I I loved it when he said His Excellency. I don't know how sarcastic is that, but anyway, it's good. Thank you so very much. And I always love to joke and, you know, uh, mix some pleasure with some serious business. Thank you, Dr. Anas. Thank you, Joe. Or Sorry, I didn't see the name. I don't have my glasses on. The, the host, 
thank you everybody and may god may god may allah let us pass these only two months and things will be back to hopefully wish you all the best of luck inshallah inshallah thank you sir we really appreciate you coming in here we know it's late over there have a have a good night tonight thank you sir and thank you dr anas again great um george i think maybe coming back in a minute we may have one time i know daniel's been sitting there for a little bit and he's a grad student doctor so so uh, three three days oh there you're back okay so um let's take take five more minutes and that's going to be it because this room is going in four hours it's gone way longer than i thought it was going to so we could talk forever and um we're gonna do it we're doing we're doing plenty of more rooms don't worry i know we hadn't done a room for a week or so i was away but we're doing a room on Tuesday at, I believe it's 11 a.m. with Julian Brigden, who's been so right on uh, interest rates and inflation in the economy. So that's a don't miss, a don't miss session. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time on uh, Tuesday. I had a I had a meeting reminder up. I had to take it down because for those of you who aren't aware, there's this feature on Twitter where you only can advertise one meeting at a time in advance. It's really very annoying. So in order to post this room. I had to take down the other one. So 11 a.m. market, 11 a.m. Tuesday Eastern Time market calendars. All right, three aces. I think we're at four hours. This is really a lot longer than I anticipated. So um, if you're good with it, I think we I think we close the room. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think we've covered an enormous amount of real estate here and another great spaces, George. Thank you very much. Awesome. For and and everyone, uh, 11 a.m. on Thursday. I'll post. Sorry, Tuesday. I'll post it. Julian Brigden. He's been really smart um, fellow out of London. He's been writer's reign on the economy and inflation and interest rates. Do not – if you like James Ferguson a few weeks ago, it's similar type of point of view. Really, really smart. Again, I want to thank everyone. Dr. Ahaji, thank you so much. Amy, Three Aces, Tommy Thornton, Jeff Carpaccio, uh, and all the others who aren't even here now. This has been an awesome room. See you guys on Tuesday. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Thanks, George. Thank you. Bye. Bye, bye, bye.